This is Jocko Podcast number 67 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. We are soldiers, Marines, grunts, ground pounders, infantrymen, jarheads, Tommies, doughboys, GIs. We march. We walk for miles. Miles that don't stop. Miles that don't end. Miles that are filled with fear. Fear of the unknown. Fear of the enemy. Fear of wounds. Fear of death. But we march on. Our boots try to stomp that fear into the ground. People talk of glory on the battlefield, but it is only talk. On the battlefield, there is only guttural instinct to survive and protect your brother. Things are done not for glory, but for love. We march on. We march in the heat, in the cold, and the rain, and the snow. We march through deserts and streets and in the valleys and up the hills. Every step we take is a new step into the unknown. But at the same time, it is a step that has been taken thousands of times before by other soldiers in other times. The names change, the weapons change, the cause is different, but the faces, the faces are the same. The man does not change. The fear is the same as is the will. The hardened will to drive on, to move forward, to march. We close with the enemy. Be it swords or bayonets, rifles or machine guns, spears or grenades, daggers or our bare hands. We bring our weapons to bear and unleash them with fury. There is no crowd watching. There are no admirers. It is only us. And when one of our brothers is killed, it rips us apart. Magnificent men. The best of us, beautiful human beings filled with hopes and dreams and filled with life. And in death, all those hopes and all those dreams and all that life is drained away, taken away.
away. And in that moment, when a warrior falls, the whole world should come to a standstill. The whole world should stand and bow their heads and grieve the loss of that hero. The whole world should stop and get on their knees and praise what that man has sacrificed and acknowledge this supreme and uncorrupted eminence of that soldier, of that warrior. But the world does not stop. The world carries on. It is only we warriors that truly mourn. It is us alone that bow our heads. It is us alone that bow our heads and mourn the loss of that fallen saint. The saint who has given everything for us and then we warriors we raise our heads we raise our heads again and with fire in our hearts we lock and load our weapons and we march We march forward toward fear and toward evil and toward our fate. We march forward without any question of what is at stake. We march forward not for reward, but for duty. Not for ourselves, but for each other. We march forward, not for glory, but for love. Forward. Forever. We march on. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. I was asked the other day by a another veteran how to cope with losing friends and I answered that question and in that answer as I thought about it afterwards you know I I thought of this eternal warrior this warrior that's been around since man has existed hungry tired scared but heroic heroic in his ability to put those discomforts aside and do what he must do 
And tonight, we're going to look at another book about another band of brothers going back once again to World War II, back on the European continent. A book by a guy by the name of Charles McDonald, who served as a company commander during the war. And he actually went on to become the deputy chief historian for the U.S. Army and authored a bunch of books about the war. But we're going to look at his first book today, which is simply called Company Commander. And he wrote this book just after the war in 1947. And, you know, I I get a bunch of books. Mm -hmm. and I've, I've talked about this like somebody tells me there's a good book out there and I don't even try and read the reviews anymore I just order it because mm-hmm. I figure there's a chance it's good and then when I get it I kind of you know I have to crack it open and see if it's the kind of thing that I'm gonna cover that really suits the podcast and this book I just cracked it open right to the preface which normally I, I go in the middle somewhere I might take a quick look at the preface but then I, you know, will look throughout the book and this preface, as soon as I got, I got one sentence into this, this preface, or I say the first paragraph into this, into this preface. And I was like, okay, we're doing this book. Mm. So with that, let's go to the book and start with the preface. Once again, this book is called Company Commander by Charles B. McDonald, written in 1947. Here we go. The characters in this story are not pretty characters. They are not even heroic if lack of fear is a requisite for heroism. They are cold, dirty, rough, frightened, miserable characters. G.I.s, Johnny Doughboys, Dog Faces, Foot Sloggers, Poor Bloody Infantry, or as they like to call themselves, Combat Infantry Men. But they win wars. They are men from companies I and G, 23rd Infantry, but they might as well be men from companies A and K, 16th Infantry, or they might be men from companies C and E, 254th Infantry. For their stories are relatively the same. Some may have fought the Germans longer than others, or some may have fought the Germans less. For all, it was an eternity. The characters in my story are not fictional, and any similarity between them and persons living or dead is intentional. And some of them are dead. This is a personal story, an authentic story. And to make a story of war authentic, you must see a war. Not a hasty taste of war, but the dread, gnawing daily diet of war. The horrors and fears that are at first blunt testimony that you are a novice. And then later become so much a part of you that only another veteran through some sixth sense, may know that those same horrors and fears are yet there. I was an officer in the war, a captain and company commander of companies I and G. 
and because I was a captain my lot was easier sometimes than that of Joe private and Joe first class and Joe sergeant and even Joe lieutenant but when my lot was easier physically it might be harder mentally because I knew Joe private and Joe private first class and Joe sergeant and Joe lieutenant and I could not suppress my love and admiration for them but physical suffering can be worse sometimes and when the GI's lot was harder than mine I shall try and tell you that because I am NOT the hero of my story the heroes are the men from companies I and G the lead scouts the riflemen the machine gunners the messengers and the mortarmen companies I and G are called rifle companies in the army and when you call a company a rifle company you are speaking of the men who actually fight wars I did not fight the Germans as long as some of the characters in my story some of them had been meeting the enemy since D plus one June 7th 1944 when I joined them in September as a replacement company commander they had completed the capture of a stubborn enemy garrison at Brest France the day before I joined them they rested in an open field on the Brittany Peninsula for five days and then they took a train ride on a French freight cars across France to meet the Germans again so there's the preface and you can see when he joins this company these guys have already been fighting for over three months close to four months when he shows up new guy no combat experience he shows up and has to jump right into the game and here's some thoughts that he has coming fresh from the states company i 23rd infantry i thought you fought your way ashore in normandy on d plus one you battled to the hot top of hill 192 to pave the way for the saint low breakout you stormed the ring of pillboxes at brest and had your number reduced to 50 in the explosion as the Germans blew them up in your faces and now they give you a company commander fresh from the States they ask you to put your faith in me I felt weak and ineffectual my mind began to peruse the duties that were before me and this is when he's out on patrol he's kind of on his first patrol now in one day and at the most three I would be leading these men against a team of trained killers I wondered how I would react these men deserve the best leadership could I give it to them they could boast a glorious combat record already and I knew nothing suddenly all my long hours of training for just such a role as this seemed pitifully inadequate if only there were some way I could know just what it was like it seemed incredible that this group of hardened combat veterans could accept me as an inexperienced youth of 21 to lead them into battle simply because he happened to come to them wearing a set of flashy bars on his shoulders if only I could look into their minds and see what they were thinking so you can see this guy's definitely feeling what just about everyone moving into a leadership position feels which is I'm not ready for this and I don't know everything and as I've said a bunch of times that's okay everybody knows that you don't know everything everything everybody expects that you don't know everything what you don't want to do is go act like you know everything because they're gonna see right through it 
now they're they're moving a little bit more and we're starting to get closer to combat my pulse quickened so this is it i said to myself using a phrase that every replacement uses a thousand times before he ever actually reaches combat i would soon know if i could take it i would soon know if i could justify the faith of the men of company i we dispersed to our company areas in the darkness outside the tent i noticed flashes of artillery to the east and the deep rumbling of the big guns came from the distance a voice in my brain kept repeating this is it this is it i stumbled blindly through the dark forest in the direction of the company so obviously i'm fast forwarding some stuff here and this is just him getting closer and closer to going into combat and you know <laughs> every veteran now has that feeling you know since the wars for us started for for this generation started of this is it <laughs> it's so true everyone's thinking that this is it this is it this is the big one this is can i take it and so many guys will say that that's what drives them into the military for me for sure you want that test and there's no there's no bigger test than hey there's other human beings that are trying to kill me and I have to go kill them that's that's the biggest test there is and guys want to know if they can take it here's some of his thoughts be calm be businesslike this is the same as maneuvers maneuvers just meaning training maneuvers give some orders start things movings you're going to have a look at the German army so this is he's going out on a little reconnaissance And he now they're they're getting in sort of a defensive position here, and he says this back to the book. I decided to dispose depo, dispose my company initially as the lieutenant had done. We could make changes later. I would have preferred holding one of my rifle platoons in support position, but it seemed unwise for our company frontage was great. So you can see he's already listening to like his lieutenant has his guys set up a certain way. He's going with it. He's not going up there and changing everything right away because he's just gonna kind of set back and see how things go now they're expecting to get attacked expecting to get attacked with with small arms fire but instead it ends up being some mortar fire and here we go back to the book but the sound of bullets did not come in its stead came the sharp crack and heavy explosion that I knew must be mortar fire falling behind me it sounded as if the shells were falling on the crest of the ridge that we had so recently left but I took no time to look back I increased my speed and dived behind a clump of bushes there would be no protection protection from those bushes against the mortar shells, but I was comforted by their concealment. I lay there panting. So here's his first contact. This is it. This is it. My brain kept repeatedly, kept repeating madly over and over. I must not appear afraid. I must give these men confidence in me despite the fact that I they know I'm inexperienced. They were playing their parts well. I had been unable to detect any attitude of distrust in their actions, and I had searched their faces for long periods of time. I must keep that confidence. I must. I must. Scared, Captain? Sergeant Savage asked. So Sergeant Savage is like his senior enlisted guy, and he's looking at him. He goes, scared, Captain? And he says, a little, I admitted. I took a long, slow drag on my cigarette. We are. We all are, Savage said. We always are. Pretty uh, good vote of confidence. And 
you can see the senior enlisted guy trying to make him feel comfortable with it, right? That's mm-hmm. a good senior enlisted guy. That's not trying to make him, not trying to go ego, hey, what are you, what's your problem? You, you look scared, you know, captain. Mm-hmm. No, he said, hey, don't worry, boss. We're all scared. No big deal. We just got to stay professional. So these guys end up in a, in a, in a, hunkered down defensive position that he's got a man he ends up being there for quite a few days where it's it's a pillbox you know a bunker and his main control point or command point is inside one of these pillboxes and they end up with a bunch of guys in this pillbox and then he's got little foxholes dug out away from the pillbox where there's little platoon guys and squads that are set up in these positions and so his his task is to maintain this security positions and that's what he does Going back to the book, I didn't plan to sleep at all the first night. Now that we were in position and the difficulties of moving were moving in no longer worried me, I was filled with a growing fear that the Germans might hit us with a counterattack. I decided that the enemy must surely know that the troops were moving in and would attempt to dislodge us while, while we might still be disorganized. Eleven men in a pillbox. Eleven men who must live from day to day, never thinking of the immediate future, but only of the infinity when the war would someday be over. There was Sparky and First Sergeant Albin, Savage, Blackburn, Crotu, and me. There was Private First Class Willie Hagen. The tobacco-chewing 39-year-old army regular who kept us laughing with sage tactical wisdom and served as first platoon runner. Then there was Private First Class Angelo Butare of Boston, second platoon runner who had lost two brothers in the war already. Private First Class Hubert Berger of Memphis, Tennessee, third platoon runner who's 18 years old and read his Bible every night. Private First Class Kenneth Lampton of Detroit, Michigan, weapons platoon runner who is also 18 and corresponded with college girls from Michigan. And Private First Class Erling G. Salberg of Fargo, North Dakota, who is 19 and cleanly good-looking and the headquarters bazooka man. The cooks and jeep drivers, the supply sergeant and the mail orderly had been left behind with the service company to keep us supplied. The changing of the guard at 4 o'clock revealed that it was raining outside, a slow, cold, miserable drizzle. I thought of the men in the forward platoons in their exposed foxholes, with no protection from the elements except shelter half stretched across their holes and nothing between them and the hostile killers in front of us but the muzzles of their own rifles. I had admired the unglamorous infantry soldier before, but as the rain continued to fall and the night grew colder, my pride at being a part of this dirty, miserable infantry knew no bounds. Now, like I said, there was he was in this main pillbox, which it has protection, right? It's got a roof and they're a little bit relaxed in there, a little bit. You know, they're they're protected, Mm -hmm. not just from the enemy, but they're protected from the elements as well, somewhat. So he goes out and he's going out to visit the guys that are in foxholes that are just basically sitting out there bearing the elements, you know, like he said, nothing between them and the enemy but the the muzzle of the rifle. Back to the book. Any idea that I might have entertained that my visit would bolster the morale of these men was overshadowed by the effect the visit had on my own morale. How, could, how they could smile and laugh and joke in their present condition, I could not see. But each man had a cheery word for me as I approached. 
If I had possessed any misgivings that these men would weaken under the hardships of their cramped position and the adverse weather, they faded away into nothing. Their courage and fortitude made me admiringly envious and brought a lump to my throat. So he's thinking, I'm going to go out there and boost their morale. The opposite happens. <laughs> the opposite happens. He's boosted by seeing them and seeing how, how intact and motivated they were out there. Back to the book. As we reached the right flank of the platoon, I noticed a man huddled in his foxhole, trembling violently beneath a blanket which covered his head. Lieutenant Ante grasped him by the shoulder. I thought I told you to get digging this hole out deeper, he said sternly. The blanket came off the soldier's head. You're putting me way off here by myself so I can be killed, he shouted, half sobbing. You want me to be killed? There's nobody over here but... Shut up, Ante said. You want the whole goddamn German army to hear you? Get to digging that hole. There's two men right here with you, and the next hole's ten feet away. Nobody wants to see you killed. We turned away. I looked back over my shoulder at the soldier. He's been like that ever since... He's been with the platoon, Auntie said. Uses every excuse he can get to go to the rear. He won't work to get himself warm like I try and get him to. If he doesn't come around tonight, send him back to the CP, I said. We can keep him there for a night and see how he turns out. So, although some guys are clearly in good spirits out there, you still got guys that are breaking down. And... You got to deal with him and you can see he's gonna pull him off the line get him back to the CP and actually I don't go into this But he ends up getting evacuated and when they get him back they figure out that he's got appendicitis So he's in he's in rough shape Hmm. but so some time passes and you know, they're dealing with sort of Clandestine attacks are coming the Germans will kind of probe them or sometimes they're well they're, They're receiving indirect fire some mortars and artillery on a fairly regular basis Back to the book. I awoke at 10 for the start of the fourth day in the pillbox. It was a day of K rations, of glorious sunshine, of adjusting artillery fire, of testing telephone lines after enemy shelling, of signing one's names to envelopes of countless letters, of requesting supplies from battalions, of one and a hundred things that were becoming more and more routine. But always there was the deep, fearful dread of the enemy mortar shell that dropped unheralded from the sky, of the artillery round that screeched a fiendish warning as it approached, and the deep dread, too, of the darkness that would come tonight, just as it had come last night, and just as it would come the next night and the next. And any night the darkness might release a horde of fanatical German soldiers eager to kill and drive us from our holes and pillboxes, or perhaps a flame-throwing half-track spouting its flaming, oily death into the deepest recesses of the pillboxes. The nervousness was like a malignant disease that ate itself up and down the line and back again. hear about that stress you hear about that constant constant stress and you notice it's the things that you can't control yeah it's the things that you can't control that's the horrible things about the the mortar and the artillery fire you can't control it's just random and you can't control where that round hits if it hits in your foxhole you're dead if it hits three feet away from your foxhole you live and I think the they had these flame throwing half tracks and I think just the the, the to die by burning to death everybody knows that's a nightmare yeah. 
Mm. And so that's creeping in their minds as well. Back to book. It seemed that I'd only been asleep a few minutes when I awoke. The pillbox was a mass of moving men with apparently no pattern. A deep, dull throbbing filled my head, accentuated by a fierce pounding that pushed relentlessly against my temples. I jumped from the bunk with a start. The throbbing in my head was a big gun firing. The man seated there by the table was covered with a dull brown dust. Blood was streaming from a gash in his forehead. A tank's firing right at us, Captain, Sparky said excitedly. They hit the head they hit the shed with the mortarman in it. Sergeant Patterson got a cut in the head. I tried to shake the cobwebs of sleep from my brain. I had been asleep for hours. It was daylight. It was eight o'clock in the morning. I moved over to the wounded man. He was Sergeant Lee Patterson, a North Carolinian, and one of the squad leaders from the mortar section. The wound was bleeding profusely. Another man held a handkerchief immediately below it to prevent blood from running into the sergeant's eyes. It's not bad, the sergeant said. said. Just a cut from some loose brick. It was flying all around the cellar when the shells hit. Looks worse than it is, I guess. So now they're they're under attack, and I'm, I'm, you're going to notice a pattern. I don't know if I'll cover it enough, but this poor guy, this poor guy, uh, McDonald, Captain McDonald. It seems like every time they get a major attack, he's getting awoken from being asleep because he's not <laughs> sleeping very often. But every time he puts his head down, you see almost every time he gets awoken or every time they receive a major attack, it's because he's asleep, and boom, all of a sudden things start happening. He, he must have been so paranoid to go to sleep, knowing mm-hmm. that this stuff was was hanging over his head. So they're getting this pretty co- pretty big coordinated attack, and then some aircraft show up. Some some P forty seven shows up. Uh, like five P-47 shows up, and here's the description of that. Each plane circled high into the air and came down with the skill and grace of a pirouetting dancer upon its target, the bullets from its cannon beating a staccato chant of death as it dived on the Germans below. Someone behind me said, Oh, them goddamn beautiful birds. We watched in silent admiration as the planes climbed once again. Well, their work's done for the day, someone said. Yeah, a mortarman answered, reaching for a shovel. They'll go home now and have a short scotch and a hot bath and shack up with some mademoiselle or some limey wench. What a life. Yeah, and draw double salary for it, a headquarters man put in. That's the life for me. Willie Hagen said, oh, dry up. You never had it so good. So that's that's a common thing, you know, and we're going to get Dave Burke on here, and I'm sure we'll hassle him about being a pilot. I mean... That is, you go, you, you do your mission, and then you're flying back to base. Mm-hmm. And the bases are in friendly areas and they're protected, so you're going to get a short scotch and a lawn on a hot bath. And again, fast forwarding a little bit, and also going back to him being asleep and being rudely awakened. Here we go, back to the book. I was nodding off. I was nodding often as the hands of my watch neared three o'clock, awakening each time with a start and shaking my head in an effort to clear it, clear the sleep from my brain. A shot rang out. It seemed to come from the very entrance of the pillbox and was the cue that set off a a fusillade of small arms that reverberated back and forth among the hills. I could discern the slow chatter of one of our heavy machine guns, then the intimidated guttural tone of a burp gun. All the sounds seemed to emanate from the area around the farmhouse as if every conceivable type of small arms vied to be heard above the accompanying noises. The explosion of a German-type concussion grenade joined the uproar. 
An American grenade exploded and its fragments whined through the air. A few rounds of mortar fire exploded above the din. I heard the guards scuffle and curse as they tripped on the entrance to the pillbox. I was suddenly afraid. I was suddenly more afraid than I had ever been before. My body seemed weak all over and I wondered if I had the strength to stand up. I opened my mouth to sound the alarm and I wondered if anything would come out. Wake up, everybody. I shouted, surprised that the words actually came forth. I don't want anybody caught sleeping in this damn pillbox. We had waited long enough. The Germans had come. The sound of small arms continued, heightened by the explosions of dozens of light mortar shells. Fear gripped my body and left me trembling. I was not so much afraid of what was happening as I was of the horrible visions my mind had dreamed up of what would happen should we fail to repulse the attack. I visualized the mad dash, dash to reach the entrance to the pillbox to escape entrapment within, only to be met by a hail of enemy fire or a hellish blast of a flamethrower. My imagination ran a gauntlet of evil. So this is a counterattack. Well, this is what you've been waiting for. Now the company of veterans will find out what it has in this youthful, inexperienced CO. Quit shaking, goddammit. Stop trembling all over. Get control of yourself. Act like a soldier, goddammit. At least you can impersonate an officer. Savage tried the battalion phone. The handle, which should have produced a ring, made an unnatural grating sound. The line's out, he cried. I'll try the other line, Blackburn. I'll try the other line. Blackburn, get your radio set up outside. So this is, despite the fact that they've been mortared and they've taken some fire and they've had some little probing attack, this is the big one. This is this is it. The Germans had come. And it's interesting to hear his thoughts as this is going on. He's trying to tell himself, stop shaking, calm down, act like a soldier. Hey, if nothing else, just pretend that you're a soldier right now. Just act like an officer should act right now. Classic. So... They start receiving this pretty intense attack, and he gets on the radio, eventually get the radio set up, and he says, attack is hitting my left flank and right flank of Love Company. Their lines must be out too. Fire us, concentration, 2-2-1, over. So what they do is, and they get in these these defensive positions, they set up and they have pre-designated firing areas where they can have our friendly artillery or mortars bomb areas they already know where they are. So they this one was called Concentration 221. That's wherever wherever the enemy was attacking from, they have a name for it. They say put bombs on 221. Boom, you can get it done really quick. And this it's it pretty much uh, almost immediately halts this attack. And of course, that attack goes away. They they kind of get that one under control. And now he's tired cuz he didn't get much sleep, so he goes back to sleep. And here we go back to the book. It seemed that I had been asleep for hours when I awoke suddenly with a start. Sparky's voice came to me somewhere from somewhere in the distance. I'm trying to get the artillery. I'm trying to get the artillery. Blackburn's voice was somewhere else beside it. Get me Captain Anderson. Get me Captain Anderson. But what was the noise in the background? What was that pounding? Someone must be beating on the pillbox with a sledgehammer. What was that deafening noise? I jumped from my bunk. My feet stung from the rough contact with the concrete floor. That was artillery and mortars exploding exploding my head. I couldn't think. I shook my head sharply to clear the sleep from my brain. The Germans had come again. And what mortars and artilleries? Good God, they must be firing every weapon around for miles. 
There was a wild look in Sparky's eyes. They've hit all three platoons, Captain, he cried. Head on. They're pounding the hell out of them. Worst barrage I ever heard. Worst barrage I ever heard, Captain. So like I said, whenever whenever Captain McDonald falls asleep, <laughs> they're getting attacked. And that's what they're receiving, really heavy attack again. So they repulse that first attack, and now they're coming back at him again, and this time it's with some serious artillery. For God's sake, get us some artillery, Captain, he cried. They're knocking the hell out of us. Small arms and burp guns and this goddamn mortar and artillery fire. I never saw such a barrage. We gotta get some help or we'll never stop them. For God's sake, Captain, hurry, Middlebrook said. His voice was half frantic. I got two wounded men here in my pillbox now. God knows how many more are out there. I suddenly remembered the 155s. That close-in concentration we had zeroed on our front. So 155s, the bigger artillery shell it's the big big daddy and they had they had got a concentration of fire that was really close to them so hey if we're getting like just about to get overrun we can call this this particular concentration of fire mm-hmm. that close in concentration we had zeroed on our front what was it called queen 163 queen 163 oh god let us get the 155s hello tear one to tear three roger tell Terra to give us the 155's concentration queen 163 and fast over so he calls in that concentration which is which is really close to them you're calling in 150 I think 155 millimeter mortar shell I want to say it has like 25 or 30 pounds of explosive in it and they're calling in a bunch of it Mm. and here we go. My heart skipped a beat. Savage ran back inside to relay the news to platoons, and the big artillery shells whispered their messages of outgoing death. The deafening explosions to our front were followed by the noise of shrapnel spraying the trees around the farmhouse, and small pieces of spent shrapnel fell around us. So they're calling those bombs so close that they're getting hit with the shrapnel from the bombs. That's how close the enemy was, and that's how close they're calling these bombs in. I called for a repeat on the barrage. And when the battalion said, Roger, we kn- I knew we had won. No attacking force could withstand a barrage like that. So that's a command that you use when you're calling an artillery. It's called repeat, yeah. which is actually why you never say repeat on the radio. When you see in the movie, someone says, oh, can you repeat that? You don't yeah. actually say that. You don't say repeat unless you're specifically doing this, getting them to call more bombs in. Yeah. What do you say then on the radio? Say, say again. Oh, say again. Right? Yeah, you say say again. And so they call these big bombs come in. And another couple days go by. They end up spending a total of nine days in the, in the pillbox and in that position. And then finally they get told, okay, we're going to pull you out of the pillboxes. And we're going back to the book. I tried to keep my voice in a normal pitch through the conversation, but I wanted to jump and kick and scream with joy. Tears came to my eyes, and I thought I would choke with happiness. It was almost too wonderful to be true. My battalion runners would arrive around midnight, leading the men of Company B. We were getting out of the pillboxes. And tonight, Company I was to be relieved. <laughs> so there you go, nine days in the pillboxes. The other company, Company B, comes out to relieve them, and they're doing a, a turnover with Company B. So he's sending like one platoon back at a time, and he's staying there with the new company commander whose name is uh, Captain Cowan. And we're going back to the book. A few minutes later, a call came for Captain Cowan over the platoon phone. A tenseness came over his face as he answered. He handed the phone back to the soldier sitting at the table. 
They just killed one of our own men, he said to me. One of my squad leaders was moving around to the front and was going back to his hole. One of the bar men let him have it. Thought he was a German. I wondered how it would feel to have one of your own men killed by an accident. Having a man killed by the enemy would be bad enough, although I had been mercifully spared that thus far. I shuddered. My men are nervous as hell, Captain Cowan said. They've heard all sorts of rumors and stories about these positions. Makes them trigger happy. So we got a blue on blue. Guy's first night in position. And they're freaked out. They've heard all these rumors. They know that these guys are getting pounded by the enemy and the Germans keep attacking. And they get so paranoid that they accidentally shoot one of their own guys. Now, these guys get moved to the rear company. I kind of get some, some, they get moved back a little. So not on the front line anymore. And this was kind of an interesting look on that. It seemed, back to the book, it seemed now we were in a quiet position. Every officer in the division with rank of major above wanted to inspect the company area. They condemned the men for not having shaved or for wearing knit wool caps without their helmets, evidently an unpardonable misdemeanor, or for untidy areas around the dugouts. These officers did not inspect my first platoon area, however, usually passing it over with the excuse that it was a bit far to walk, but we laughed inwardly, knowing that it was the threat of enemy shelling that kept most of them away. So, (laughs) oh, you're back in the rear. Now everyone wants to come and meet you. Meet the boys because there's no danger there. Well, guess what? The boys know. The boys know what's up. Now, he's about to get an order to go out on the attack. So he's been in a defensive position. Now he's moving to attack. Get set. It's coming now, the attack order. At last, you're going to attack. There's no chance now for a reprieve. The CO of of the 393rd had insisted that we attack immediately to relieve the besieged unit. The colonel continued, but he had succeeded in putting off the attack until morning. We would jump off slightly before dawn at 7 o'clock, attacking astride the east-west highway. Company I would attack on the left. Additional ammunition would be available later at battalion. The platoon leaders were assembled when I returned to the company. I only had one map of the area, and there was no place where we could have a light to examine the map with the lieutenants. Sergeant Albin's slit trench was deeper than the others, but that's but but at that it amounted to little more than a than the snow scraped from the earth and a few inches of frozen earth removed. The men hastily threw dead branches across the makeshift hole, and I wriggled underneath with my map and a book of matches. One, plat- one of the platoon leaders, one by one, the platoon leaders crawled in to receive the order. I would strike a match and give them a brief glance at the map, now wet and sodden from the melting snow. I wondered if I could have drawn any worse conditions under which to issue my first attack order. So here the, uh, they had moved forward, but now they're getting ready to attack, and he's given his first briefing to his platoon leaders. He only has one map, which is completely ridiculous, and I think about... Like every single guy, when we would go out on the battlefield, every single guy would have a battle map. Every single guy. Mm. If we take 30 guys, they all are going to have a battle map with them. So here we are, the whole company of 150 guys, we've only got one map and he's got it. Mm. And by the way, it's soaking wet. And by the way, for your briefing, nowadays we go into a big secure area with a PowerPoint and big projector up and we go through all these slides that are well prepared. He's got a match in a hole and he's given this brief. 
what I'm talking about. So they end up in a forward position, and, and as this attack goes, they end up now having to switch from attacking to a defensive position, and things start to get go sideways really, really quick. And this ends up, this is actually the beginning of the Battle of the Bulge. It's a famous, obviously a famous battle, and this is sort of the beginning of it, although they did not know that at this time. So here we go back to the book. I took stock of our defensive situation. We were one rifle battalion thrust into a densely wooded area with no terrain features that favored the defender with orders to hold at all costs. We were hastily dug in along a highway facing the direction from which we hoped the enemy would come if he had to come. No company had been able to withhold a support platoon. There was no support company. Thus, the defense was a thin, single line of riflemen. So there's no backup. That's the situation they're in. A shallow draw lay to the front of my rifle platoons with a higher ridge rising beyond it over which the enemy would soon be coming. Another draw led up to my left flank protected by two light machine guns and a few riflemen in position which no man in his right mind would place machine guns unless he had no other method of defending the probable enemy approach. These guys are in a horrible situation. Our right flank lacked... our right flank lacked 50 yards of tying in with K Company along a fire break which bisected the highway. We had no anti-tank defense except two Sherman tanks and a bazooka with three rounds of ammunition. We were being supported by 99th Division Artillery, an outfit about which we knew nothing except this was their first action except for holding a quiet defensive sector for a month. But there was nothing that could be done now but wait. At 10.30, a jeep loaded with men clipped down the highway toward the rear at breakneck speed. That would be the vanguard of the retreating battalion from the 99th. The Germans would be here soon. Just imagine that. You're there to help out and defend this position and support this battalion. And the first thing you see coming from ahead of you is a jeep filled with ragtag soldiers going as fast as they can away from the enemy. Craziness. Craziness. And here it continues. A ragged column of troops appeared over the wooded ridge to the front of the second and third platoons. There were not over 200 men the remnants of 900 who had fought gallantly to our front since they were hit by the German attack the preceding day. Another group the size of a platoon withdrew along the highway, donating a few hand grenades and clips of ammunition, which they passed to my first platoon. Two men stayed to fight with my company. It's legit. You just got overrun. Some guys are giving away ammunition, giving grenades away, and these guys are, hey, where can I help out? Two enlisted men carrying a badly wounded lieutenant stopped exhausted with my third platoon. They could carry him no further. I called for a litter squad. The riflemen could not be sure if the next troops that appeared over the ridge were friendly or enemy. I alerted the artillerymen to call for fire in the event the approaching troops were German. Lieutenant Brock's call came a few minutes later, scarcely preceding a hail of small arms fire, which sounded like the crack of thousands of rifles echoing through the forest. There was no doubt now. My men could see the build caps of the approaching troops. They were Germans. And, you know, we're going to get to a point as I go through these books and I highlight little sections and I read that little section. I'm about to get to a point here shortly where I'm just going to read the whole damn section because it's, it's so much. 
it's a company that's about to get overrun right it's a company that's about to get overrun by germans and it's it's really interesting to hear what this looks like from the company commander company commander's perspective but this is i mean this is it this is you're losing the battle i mean he survives but it's it's as bad as it gets it's as bad as it gets Back to the book. Enemy bullets whistled through the trees around us. I jumped into the slit trench with Savage and Blackburn. Requests after requests for artillery and mortar support came from the platoon leaders. I called for every concentration listed on my overlay and for variations of each. So that little thing I was talking about where you're calling for these concentrations, you got two, two, three, and this one, and that one. He's just calling for all of them. Calling for all of them. Just bomb everything. The inevitable maddening three rounds fell each time. So they're trying to conserve in the rear. They're trying to conserve op- um, conserve ammunition. So they're firing three rounds at a time. And he's do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Mm-hmm. The platoon leaders begged frantically for more. I began on one side of the company area and called for concentrations all across our front and back again. Lieutenant Sawyer called for barrage after barrage of 81 millimeter mortar fire. The crack of small arms reached an ear splitting crescendo. Crescendo like static on a forgotten radio during an electric storm. I lay flat on my back in the slit trench. The platoon phoned to one ear, the receiver of the battalion radio on the other. The chill from the frozen earth seeped through my clothes and I shivered, but I was surprised at my own calmness. The long nights of shaking terror in the pillboxes convinced me that I would never be calm in combat. I did not know what had possessed me to keep calm. Surely this is the most serious situation in which I had ever found myself. The small arms fire reached another crackling crescendo. Crescendo. The small arms fire reached another crackling crescendo. Long had several men wounded. Long is one of the other commanders. He didn't know how many or how badly. The enemy bullets were too thick to move around. Were too thick to move around. I called again for litter squads. Wave after wave of frantically screaming German infantry stormed the slight tree-covered rise held by three platoons. A continuous hail of fire exuded from their weapons, answered by volley after volley from the defenders. Germans fell left and right. A few rounds of artillery, the few rounds of artillery we did succeed in bringing down caught the attackers in a draw to our front, and we could hear their screams of pain when the small arms fire would slacken. But still they came. Artillery and Nebelwerfers, which is like another kind of cannon, a German cannon, with their accompanying terrifying screams played a deep accompaniment in the background. The shells exploded to our rear and around the road junction to our right. We ignored their crushing explosions thinking how thankful we were that their effects were reserved for others than ourselves. The small arms fire rose and fell again and then again, indicating that the attacking troops had withdrawn momentarily to the bottom of the draw to regroup before launching another suicidal assault. Reinforcements streamed over the ridge behind them to join the assaults. The draw and the highway were littered with their dead and wounded, but there seemed to be no end of their fanatical attacks. Second platoon reported as company soldier killed. It was the first first death in company I since I had taken command three months before, but the news was not so staggering as I had expected it would be. There was too much other excitement. The dead soldier was technician fifth grade Martin W. Carlson from Pennsylvania. He was an aid man whom the rifleman idolized, who had jumped from his foxhole to aid a wounded soldier nearby. A bullet pierced his helmet and he fell face forward into a hole of the wounded rifleman he had sought to aid. 
He was a non-combatant, according to the rules of warfare, and was denied the privilege of wearing the combat infantryman badge and the $10 per month pittance for dangers and hardship endured. But death made no distinction. Message after message came over the platoon phone. Lieutenant Wilson was badly wounded. He could not walk and must have a litter. Ammunition was running lower and lower. The M Company machine gunners with the 1st platoon were out of ammunition except enough to keep one gun firing a few minutes longer. The 60mm mortars found their ammunition supply so low that they fired only when the enemy was actually assaulting. Germans were being killed as close as 10 yards forward of the foxholes. Hand grenades were practically all gone. Yeah, this is, this is it. There was no solace from the battalion. Each call for litter bearers or additional ammunition was met with the maddening words, we're doing all we can. I told them we could not hold out much longer unless we got additional ammunition. Captain Montgomery said, we must hold. Our orders are to hold at all costs, he said. I wondered if he could possibly realize the meaning of those words. We must hold until every last man was killed or captured. Company I's last stand. And what is to be gained? Nothing but time. Time born of the bodies of dead men. Time. Seven times the enemy infantry assaulted, and seven times they were greeted by a hail of small arms fire and hand grenades that sent them reeling down the hill, leaving behind a growing pile of dead and wounded. But with all, the, t- the attacks seemed poorly organized. There was no supporting artillery or mortar fire on our positions, and I wondered why they had not yet found the open flank on our left. There was only the suicidal wave of fanatical infantrymen whooping and yelling and brandishing their rifles like men possessed. I looked at my watch. It was 3.30 in the afternoon. Time was passing amazingly fast. Long, again Long was the uh, was one of the other platoon commanders, Long said he saw enemy tanks. There were five of them, giant tigers lumbering down the road 300 yards away, surrounded by over 100 in- enemy infantrymen. Get those Shermans into action. Sherman was our, our U.S. tank. Get those Shermans into action. It's your only hope. You might. He's talking to himself. You might hold off the infantry, even with your ammunition practically exhausted, but riflemen can't fight tiger tanks. The first platoon has your only three rounds of bazooka ammo. Unless the Shermans can stop them, three rockets are all there is between you and Company I and Kingdom Come. So, small arms, obviously machine guns, they don't do anything to a tank. And they only have, and there's five enemy tanks coming, and they only have three bazooka rounds, which a bazooka round can stop a tank. But, you know, you got to hit. It's got to be a good hit and all that. So he knows he's in big, big trouble. I called Sergeant Garcia to send a man to contact the tankers and tell them to move immediately to their former positions on the left flank. This business of improved positions was so much bosh. Garcia's answer was stunning. They're gone, Captain. They pulled back to K Company 15 minutes ago. (laughs) So he's expecting the Sherman tanks there to be help out? They're gone. I did not take time for the full meaning of his words to sink in giving our giving our call sign over the radio i asked colonel tuttle and told him my plight either i get those tanks back to my left flank or i could not possibly hold the position while waiting for the colonel's answer i tried barrage after barrage to destroy the tigers 
with artillery and mortars, but we made not a single hit, and the near misses only stopped the infantry temporarily, not phasing the great steel monsters in the least. They waddled effortlessly on toward the hapless riflemen. A round of 88 millimeters snapped from the top snapped the top from a fir tree above our heads and fragments sprayed down in all directions. There could be no doubt now. The tigers had arrived. Round after round crashed into the area. A momentary shrill whistle followed by a deafening explosion and a sharp thud of the round being fired, the latter reaching us after we heard the shell explode. For God's sake, Captain, Long screamed over the phone, his half-voice sobbing. Get those tanks down here. Do something. For God's sake, these bastards are sitting 75 yards away and pumping 88s into our foxholes like we're sitting ducks. For God's sakes, Captain. What about your bazooka? He said a bullet had gone in one end and bent the tube so the rocket would not pass through. Colonel Tuttle was on the battalion radio. The tankers said it would be suicide for them to face the Tiger tanks. They would not move unless he gave them a direct order, and then he was afraid they would disobey it. And he was inclined to agree that they stood no chance against the more heavily armored Tigers and the 88s. So these American tanks, they can't fight against the Tigers, and so they're backing up so that they can survive. I burned with anger. And I must have been insubordinate. If my men could fight the armor-plated monsters with nothing but rifles and die in the attempt, the tankers could afford to try it with medium tanks. If we don't get the tanks, we can't hold another five minutes, I said slowly. And finally, thank you, sir. Roger, out. And for those of you that don't know, I've explained this before. Out means you don't need to talk back to me. You don't need to. I'm not requesting a response. Out means I'm done. I'm hanging up the radio, which is interesting that Normally, the the junior person the, the the says you know over, and it's the senior person that says, "Hey, don't talk to me anymore." Right? Mm-hmm. I'm done with you. So he's saying to the to his leader, he's saying, "If we don't get the tanks, we can't hold another five minutes." Thank you, sir. Roger out. Shades of General Custer, Company I's last stand. Hell, what does it matter? You never expected to get out of this war alive anyway. Not really. I gave Long the news. He was frantic. There was absolutely nothing he and his men could do. A direct hit had landed on one of the heavy machine guns. Another had hit the technic- hit technical sergeant Smith's foxhole. Smith was the platoon sergeant. Long didn't know if he was dead or not. The other machine gun crew was out of ammunition and was withdrawing. He was powerless to stop them. He was afraid his left flank and the draw was falling back, but he couldn't see to make sure. Hold, Long, I cried. For God's sakes, hold. We've got to hold. I wondered how I made my voice so convincing. I wanted to throw away the platoon phone and the battalion radio and everything connected with the war and bury my head in my hands and cry, cry, cry. The infantry assault upon the other platoons continued. The sound of the battle reached a height which I had never thought possible before. The burst of the 88 millimeter shells in the woods vied with the sound of hundreds of lesser weapons. It couldn't last forever, I thought. It must stop sometime. It must stop, but when and how? I looked toward the draw between me and the highway. About 20 men were walking down the draw toward the rear. I recognized several men from the light machine gun section and a machine gun crew from M Company. The others were riflemen from 1st Platoon. I did not know where they were going. All I knew is that somehow I must stop them. I jumped from the slit trench and ran toward them, ignoring the crack of bullets through the trees, waving my arms and shouting for them to stop. They turned to look at me. 
with vague blank expressions they seemed to wonder who was this crazy man who wanted them to do this foolish thing I saw that it was the entire left flank of first platoon the thin lines of the remainder of the platoons would soon be cut off from the rear the 60 millimeter mortar men a few yards away a few yards away were dismantling their weapons I managed to get my move to get the men to move to my CP but I could not step them that stop them there they walked slowly on towards the rear half dazed expressions on their faces so his guys are leaving and he's doing what he can to get them to stop and fight but they're they're leaving this is it's not happening the guys know and and they're out I mean they're out of bullets yeah. right they're out of bullets they don't have any ammunition left yeah. they're nothing to do yeah. so they're leaving I jumped into the slit trench and grasped the radio handpiece. I sat on the edge of the trench, ignoring the whistle of bullets and the crash of 88mm shells around us as everyone seemed to be now doing. Get the platoon leaders on the phone, I called the savage. Hello, Roger One, I said into the radio, not waiting for my acknowledgement that they were receiving my message. This is Mac. My left flank has fallen back. I can't stop them. The Germans are overrunning my left platoon. I'll try to build up another line along the fire bank. We can't hold here. There, I had said it. This was I Company turning tail and running. This was I Company retreating. This was I Company hauling ass. This was I Company running like a son of a bitch. Strangely, I didn't give a damn. I was utterly void of feeling. Savage held the platoon phone toward me. I can't get long, he said, and Scotty's here with us now. Don't sound afraid. You got to sound like you mean business. Hello, Brock, I said calmly. They've overrun Long's position. Swing your platoon back to the left rear and we'll build up another line along the fire break. Did you get that, Garcia? Pull back and we'll tie with K Company. My CP's pulling out now. We've got to hold at the fire break. Do you understand that? We've got to hold the fire break. The men in my CP group were already moving towards the rear. I grabbed my, mus- my Musette bag and my carbine. Savage took the phone. Blackburn grabbed the radio. We ran toward the rear. We reached the north-south fire break and crossed it. The foxholes which battalion had occupied were along the far end of the clearing in a patch of small firs whose interwoven branches formed a small, dense, green barrier. I knew that any fight here would be at close quarters because the Germans would be able to advance unseen to the edge of the fire break 15 yards from the foxholes we would occupy. But it was the only spot where we had any possibility of holding. I ran up and down the line, shouting, We've got to hold him here! We've got to hold him here! The men stared back at me unbelievingly. I was asking headquarters men, armed with carbines and pistols, to hold off hordes of attacking Germans that had already broken through all our rifle platoons could offer. There was only one machine gun, a light gun manned by Private First Class Richard Cowan of Wichita, Kansas, set up five feet from the foxhole which I occupied. The Germans were almost upon us before we knew what was happening. We could not see them for the low-hanging branches of the fir trees across the fire break, but we could hear their shouts and shrill whistle signals which evidently came from their leaders. I decided they were a flanking group that was on its way unseen around our left flank even as we left our former CP. The attackers who had dislodged 1st platoon could not have reached us so quickly. 
Cowan began to spit machine gun fire across the nor- narrow fire break, and I heard German I heard a German scream with pain. The headquarters men fired their carbines and pistols into the low-hanging branches. The fir trees to the right were too thick to see the area where the rifle platoons were supposed to be going into position. I wondered if they had been able to build up any semblance of a line. A round came from an enemy tank, broke the top of the small fir tree above Cowan's head, sending him reeling from the gun, but he jumped back and continued to fire. I knew that the big tigers had reached the junction, the fire break, and the highway. Hails of enemy bullets thrashed the snow and the fir and the trees around us. The fir trees around us. I ducked beneath the cover of my foxhole trying to get battalion on the radio, but without success. I stood up and looked out of the hole. Great God, there was no one left but Cowan. The others had fallen back. I jumped from the foxhole and yelled to Cowan to withdraw. Savage and Blackburn followed me. I left my musset bag lying on the ground, but my carbine was over my shoulder. Absentmindedly, I screamed to get the radios. Savage jumped back into the foxhole, and Blackburn and I turned and plunged through thickly interlaced branches of the little firs. Bullets followed us, lashing the firs on all sides, and I wondered if maybe I had been hit. I felt no pain, but I could not see how any human being could endure those hails of bullets and not be wounded. I stumbled blindly through the brush, unheedful of the branches scratching at my face and hands. My overshoes were slick, and I tripped and fell face downward in the snow. I rose again and stumbled on blindly. As we plunged through the firs, I was separated from Blackburn and the group that had held, held briefly at the firebreak. I did not worry that Savage or the others were not with me. They were at some place else in the fir thicket. I came across Sergeant Albine and Sergeant Walter L. Dietrich of Cincinnati, Ohio, a machine gun squad leader. We plowed through the firs together until we came unexpectedly upon K's, K Company CP. A series of half-completed foxholes dug in the frozen red earth. Captain Howard C. Wilson of Houston, Texas, the K Company commander, was talking frantically over his 300 radio. He turned as I approached. Damn, but I'm glad to see you, he said. Battalion lost contact with you, and I haven't heard anything about how your company's coming. He seemed more relieved than perturbed at seeing me, and I wondered what he thought brought me to his CP. Perhaps it was the way I stood looking at him blankly. There must have been nothing in my face to tell him that my company was no more. And that even now hordes of Germans were rushing toward us unchecked. Through my mind raced only one thought. I had failed and failed miserably. My orders had been to hold at all costs. And I personally had failed. And because of my failure the entire entire battalion would be routed or annihilated and all from a local German counterattack. I company had fallen back, but I could not blame the men. They had given in because I had some way not led them correctly. It was I who was responsible. I would turn in my captain's bars if I ever reached the rear, or perhaps they would court-martial me. I did not care. There's nobody on your left flank, I told Captain Wilson in a matter-of-fact voice that I hardly recognized as my own. They just knocked the hell out of us and the whole company's fallen back. I couldn't tell you where any of I company is right now except these two sergeants and myself. Good God, what can I do, Mac? I don't know, I said. You can't hold here. There's nothing on your left. And then... 
It continues. My platoon has fallen back, he cried. It's those goddamn tanks. Yeah, I said. I had three rounds of bazooka ammo, and they knocked the bazooka out. I've got six rounds, rounds, Captain Wilson said. Two men grabbed a bazooka and disappeared into the underbrush in the direction of the enemy. I thought how foolish it was to think of stopping ten Tiger tanks with one bazooka. The two soldiers returned a moment later, panting for breath. Good God, Captain, one of them said. The woods just a few yards away from here are full of the bastards. We better get the hell out. That settles it. Tell your other platoons to withdraw into Creekelt and Rockershelt. Notify battalion. Tell them we're getting the hell out. We plunged again through the thick fir trees towards the rear. I heard cap. I heard battalion on Captain Wilson's radio telling L Company to withdraw into Rosherath before the full force of the enemy's flanking drive could hit them. We reached the edge of the patch of small firs. To our left lay the exposed highway leading up the hill into Rosherath. To our right. The corner of the fir thicket joined the corner of a patch of larger trees which extended out 200 yards up the hill. We chose the louder route without hesitation. We ran halfway through the patch of woods before we came upon a group of abandoned foxholes. Captain Wilson yelled the group to the halt. We'll hold up here, he shouted. We may be able to hold them up for a while while some of the others get out. I could not see what good we could do from this position. But I was taking commands now, and I took cover alone in a foxhole on the edge of the woods facing the highway. It was good to let someone else do the thinking for a while, even if I disagreed with the decision. I was not afraid. Instead, I was strangely apathetic to the whole affair. The Germans were hot on our tails, so what? They'd been hot on my tail for almost as long as I could remember now, and they had cut my company to ribbons. They might as well get me, too. German infantrymen emerged from the thicket we had left such a short time before and milled around two US abandoned US tanks parked in the open beside the forest. A Company M machine gunner, Private First Class Jose M. Lopez of Brownsville, Texas, set up his gun beside a hole five feet to my rear. He opened up on the German infantry with a blast of muzzle, the blast of muzzle forcing me to sink to the bottom of my hole for cover. The Germans wasted no time in returning fire, riddling the area around the machine gun in my foxhole with a burp gun and rifle fire. A Tiger tank appeared at the road junction where the, where the battalion had been shelled the night before and fired point blank at Lopez's exposed position. The long barrel of the 88 on the tank seemed to reach half the distance from the hole to my foxhole. Lopez continued to fire. An American Jeep with two aid men their red G- Geneva crosses painted on their helmets tore down the highway from the direction of Rosherath toward the road junction. I held my breath. The Tiger tank would surely blast them from the road. Couldn't they see the Germans were here now? They did. With the Jeep spinning on two wheels, they turned around and tore back up the road. The tank did not fire. Over the noise of Lopez's machine gun, I could hear the Captain Wilson shouting to withdraw into Rosherath. I wanted to obey, but I was caught in the crossfire of the heavy machine gun and the attackers. I gritted my teeth and waited for a lull in the firing. None came. I jumped from the hole and ran blindly towards the rear. Bullets snipped at my heels. The tank saw that we were running again and opened with renewed vigor. The big shells snapping the tops from the trees around us as if they were matchsticks, but I saw no one fall. Dusk was approaching, and it was difficult to see for any great distance. 
I could not make out the town of Rocherath that I knew was high on the hill to our left front, but we plunged blindly up the hill following a thin hedgerow that would be scant protection against the Germans should the Germans elect to follow us with fire. I slipped and fell down the... fell face down in the snow I cursed my slick overshoes I rose and fell again I found myself not caring if the Germans did fire snow had gotten inside my shoes and my feet were soaked my clothes were drenched perspiration covered my body and my mouth was dry I wanted a cigarette I felt like we were helpless little bugs scurrying blindly about now that some man monster had lifted the log under which we had been hiding I wondered if it would not be better to be killed, and perhaps that would be an end to everything. And that's the that's the section right there that, like I said, I mean, you just can't, I couldn't skip anything in there. Just too much stuff going on, and to hear what it's like from his perspective of being overrun, and they continue to fall back as fast as they can and they're, they're basically in an every man for him for yourself situation at this point mm-hmm. they finally do get back and he ends up in sort of a compound and he tries to find his battalion commander and so he does going back to the book we walked across the courtyard and down the dark steps of the house into the basement a group of enlisted men were eating k rations colonel tuttle was quietly talking to a group of officers A dim candle lit the room. Nice work, Mac, Colonel Tuttle said. I couldn't control myself. I could control myself no longer. The choking sensation in my throat became racking sobs that I could not hold back. The colonel tried to comfort me, and I felt foolish and childish, but I could not stop. Someone gave me a cigarette. I held it with trembling fingers. I was suddenly conscious that Colonel Tuttle was saying something to me, but at first I could not make any sense of what he was saying. This had been no local German attack. The enemy had already broken through and taken Bulligan, catching the division quartermaster and the engineering troops unaware in the undefended town. The main supply route from Krinkelt to the rear through Bulligan had thus been severed. The two other battalions of our regiment had been thrown into the battle, and the division was abandoning all its gains in the offensive to hold this critical area. Our battalion had held long enough for the 9th and 38th regiments to withdraw past the vital crossroads guarded by two stone farmhouses that I remembered from the trip forward. The 9th was setting up a line along our present location, and the 38th had taken over the defense of Krinkelt. There were unconfirmed rumors that this was a big German push all along the First Army front. The news stunned me. I stammered. You mean, you mean, I mean you did a good job, Mac, the colonel said. The Germans are throwing everything they've got. You held out much longer than I expected after I learned the true situation. So I had not failed. And I, company, had not failed. I was almost happy that the German offensive was a large-scale one. My men had done an excellent job against heavy odds, and those who had died were not dead because of some personal failing of mine. The realization made me want to cry again. I still did not know what had happened to my company. So, like I said, this was the... This was the massive, massive German counterattack that he happened to bear the brunt of in the, the beginning of the Battle of Bulge. And 
you know you can hear clearly he just thought I just we just it was a local little German attack and we folded yeah. but it was a massive German attack and they put up an incredible resistance so now he starts he links up with Savage Sergeant Savage his his senior enlisted guy he sees him back to the book Savage and I ran for each other like two college girls suddenly reunited smiles wreathed our faces we both tried to talk at once he had heard that I had been killed I had not known what had become of him I jumped back into the foxhole after you said get the radios he explained at length first thing I knew there were Germans all over the place they made me come out and took my watch and and moved me over to the highway where they had two other GIs then one of our artillery barrages started falling the crowds hit the dirt I grabbed one of their burp guns and started spraying and we ran like hell all three of us got away so that's that's how savage got out of there and a little more time passes I began to evaluate our losses in the fierce opening day fight in the in the Krinkelter vault initially Approximately 80 men were listed as missing, but each day brought a new list of names from the rear hospitals of men who had been wounded and evacuated or were victims of trench foot. The list list of missing in action finally narrowed down to 24 men. So even though, you know, they lost control and he didn't know who, he didn't know where, where everyone was. I mean, they were just gone. He was the only guy that, he was alone when he came back. Or, or he was with one or two other guys. So that's out of 150 guys. So eventually they realize, or he comes to, there's only 24 guys that they don't know what happened to, and the rest of them, the rest of them got out of there. And this is what it looked like overall. Back to the book. Our battalion was awarded the Distinguished Unit Citation for its defense in the Krinkelter Wald. And a number of men in the company were awarded bronze and silver stars for gallantry, including silver stars for Lieutenant Goffingen and me. Others were posthumous awards. Private First Class Cowan, the light machine gunner who had performed his duty so faithfully and fearlessly at the fire break, was killed in action the next day, but he received the Distinguished Service Cross that was later changed to the Medal of Honor. And Private First Class Lopez, the M Company machine gunner attached to K Company, also received the nation's highest soldier honor, the Medal of Honor. So in that one defense, these guys, you know, two Medal of Honors given out, unbelievably. Now, this is also kind of crazy. So you go through that, right? You go through that. You you lose a bunch of guys. You barely make it out. Your company is overrun. Well, guess what? It's not over. It's not over. These guys are right back at it again, and the next thing they're at is they are they get tasked with doing another attack so they do recover a little bit but they're getting told okay you good got you got you got assembled again okay we got more work for you one of the men awoke me at six o'clock I blinked my eyes several times and tried to realize where I was the realization came and with it a feeling of revulsion that the war still went on and today we would attack I wanted to turn my face back toward the wall and sleep on And they're planning this attack. I was too busy with the various details of the movement to think much about fear. I tried to recall the various phases of an attack that I had learned in training, but I was fully conscious of my lack of experience. So even after all this, he still doesn't feel like he's experienced enough. I looked at my watch. It was 15 minutes until 4 o'clock. The artillery barrage would begin in 5 minutes. L Company was moving into position now. The time was drawing near. Oh God, be with us on this attack. So the nerves don't go away. 
when we reached the railroad track, the first and second platoons jockeyed into position in the open field. They moved quickly into an approach march formation. Small explosions that sent the snow cascading in all directions and little black puffs of powder and noise appeared unpatterned over the field. The men fell face downward in the snow and rose again when the barrage lifted. The Germans were firing light mortars. One man from the second platoon lay in a crumpled heap and did not rise. His face was buried impassively in the snow. I looked at him as I passed. He was a new man, a replacement received the week before. He was the first man from the company whom I'd seen killed. And a mixed feeling of honor and pity swept over me. And a mixed feeling of horror and pity swept over me. But there was no time to stop and think. I didn't even know the man's name. How strange is war. Some of us can go for days and weeks and months in war and never be killed or wounded, but another man is killed in his first taste of war. So as they are doing this attack, this is a little tactical advice here from from Sergeant Savage. God damn it, Captain Savage said, you've got to stay further back. At least get some scouts out in front. His admonition reminded me that it was foolish for me to lead the column. The foolish days of leading one troops into battle were past, even though correspondence persisted in telling of daring generals who preceded their troops, firing from the hip or brandishing a bayonet. I had no feeling of bravado, but it seemed obvious that the woods were undefended. I dropped back to the rear of 1st Platoon. So, leadership position tactically, if you're too far forward, number one, you might get killed. Number two, you might just end up in a firefight where now you can't move and you can't make direction. You can't even talk on the radio because you're, you're in the firefight. Fast forward in a little bit, and they're in a, in a big firefight. A burp gun stuttered. A flood of fiery tracer bullets blazed along the trees. We fell face downward into the snow. The bullets traced a fiery path two feet above the ground. My men did not return fire, and I was glad. The confusion would be terrific if they opened up. The night was quiet again. I rose and motioned for Savage, Salberg, and Charles to follow. We had taken only a few steps when the burp gun opened up again. I'm hit, Captain, I heard Charles scream, and he dropped into the snow. I'm hit. I was conscious of a sudden pain in the calf of my right leg, as if someone had hit me with a giant club swung by powerful arms. I realized that I too was hit, and a sudden flood of fear engulfed me. We were 200 yards forward of any friendly troops and 800 yards inside the woods. A momentary vision of a night spent bleeding in the frozen forest swept through my mind. A warm liquid flowed over my leg and into my boat. That would be blood, I thought. I'm hit too, Charles, I said. My leg felt numb, and I dropped to the ground. The firing ceased. Charles said he was hit through the right hip and could not walk. Savage took the battalion radio, and I designated two men to carry Charles. We would have to get back to 3rd Platoon now. I believed I could walk. I stood and put weight on my wounded leg. A nauseating pain swept over me, and I thought I was going to faint. But I tried keeping the leg stiff and found that I could walk. The men around us lay flat on the snow in little bunches, as if gained some solace through sharing their fears with each other. My brain was whirling. Should we continue the attack? How badly was I hurt? Had we hit a German patrol or an outpost, outpost or stumbled upon a mainline defense? 
I hastily decided to continue to the rear out of the line of fire of the direct attack upon the German position from a less restricted spot. We moved toward the rear. Two men supporting Charles with his arms about his with his arms about their shoulders. A sudden burst of small arms fire came from our right rear, and the woods echoed to the crack of machine gun and rifles. The fire was coming from the direction of the defensive position at the junction of the fire breaks which we had left. Bullets whined low over our heads and buried themselves into the trees and snow around us. My first thought that was was that K Company had contacted our rear elements and, thinking they were Germans, had opened fire. We heard battalion talking on the radio, asking K Company what they what time they wanted to pick up their bed rolls for the night. We've got no use for bedding rolls, K Company answered. It was Lieutenant Flame. We're in a firefight. Savage turned the butterfly switch on the radio and broke the conversation with a distressed voice. Lieutenant Flame, he cried. Lieutenant Flame, this is I Company. You're firing at us. This is Item Company. This is Item Company. God damn it. I said we're in a firefight. We can't use any bedding rolls now. Lieutenant Flame, Savage continued. This is Savage. You're firing at I Company. Make your men quit firing. You're firing at I Company. You're shooting the hell out of Item Company. The radio was silent for a moment. The hell we are. If we're firing at I Company, then why in the hell don't you quit firing back? I was frightened with the realization of what he had said. We were receiving fire from K Company, but they were not firing at us. The enemy had slipped behind us. For un. For some unexplainable reason, my men had not opened fire in either of the directions from which the bullets came. I thank God that they had not started shooting. The confusion would have been trebled, and I could visualize GIs firing at one another in the darkness. That's the worst case scenario. You got bad guys in between you and other good guys. It's, It's just a horrible situation. And I maybe maybe it's hard for civilians to understand this. When you're in a firefight, you're not hitting all your targets. You're shooting suppressive fire. And so if I'm shooting in one direction, the bullets are not stopping where the enemy is. They're going to keep going indefinitely. You mm-hmm. know. So if there's friendlies behind the enemy, you can't. You basically can't shoot. Yeah. You basically can't shoot. So he McDonald gets they continue on he he continues on for a while trying to get them in a secure situation but eventually he has to get extracted because of because of his wound and he gets back when he gets he's now like under warm blankets and stuff and they're he's in the the aid station i shuddered at the thought of the company where were they now did brock's platoon get out had i done the right thing in withdrawing or should i have stayed and fought it out it seemed that I was always running. Perhaps it was all my fault. There had been a brief moment of exultation in the aid station when someone had reminded me that now I could get a nice rest in the hospital. But now a nausea of fear for the welfare of the company enveloped me. I felt somehow like a deserter. Yeah. You hear, you hear, we've heard plenty of stories about guys looking for the million dollar wound that's going to get him back to the states, and mm-hmm. the million dollar wound's good for about three minutes, and then 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 McDonald says, "Hey, I feel I feel horrible." Mm-hmm. He eventually recovers from the wound. Now you'd think, hey, you know, the guy's done a bunch of fighting; he recovered from his wound, but he got wounded, but now he's in the rear, and so you know he's probably going to get 
whatever extracted maybe move to the states maybe you know give him a nice cushy job no not happening they don't give him i company back because i company now has a new company commander they give him a company g so now he's in company g and what are they doing are they in the rear somewhere relaxing no it's attack time they're going forward so here we go. We went back to the book. We would attack the next morning at 4.45. Someone awakened me at 3.30 the next morning. It was cold in the room, and I shivered as I climbed from my sleeping bag. My mind was dulled with sleep, and I wanted to climb back into the warm sleeping bag and sleep on and on. I wanted to scream to hell with the war and go back to sleep. The sudden jolt of awakening was like emerging, emerging from a wonderful, peaceful world into a world of forbidding reality. There would be men hurt today, perhaps killed, men from my own company. It could be me. That seemed remote and impossible, but it did not remove my fear for the others. There were many responsibilities. Had I given the platoon leaders all the information they would need? How was my attack plan? Was there some important detail I had forgotten? Would Heimbach be defended? Would our attack be discovered as we crossed the flat open field towards the town? Oh God! if we could but rush from the house into the attack without thinking again. It was the waiting and the thinking and the wondering that got you. Talked about that before. Mm -hmm. That fear that you're feeling, it's the waiting, it's the hesitation. And he's saying, hey, if we could just go from this house that I'm sitting in right now, right into the attack, that's what he'd prefer to do. But he can't. And now they're moving to the attack is 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 full on now. The last men in the forward positions crossed the crest of the small hill. They should be almost inside the first houses of Bendorf now, I thought. I halted the CP group in a sunken trail, running across the crest of the hill and told Junior to ask for reports from the assault platoon. Suddenly a tank fired from somewhere to our front and a big shell a shell whirred over low over our heads. A machine gun chattered. A round of tank fire ripped from the limb from a tree above our head. A burp gun said, burp, burp. There was no question now. We had hit their defenses. The Germans, too, had tanks. I was trembling slightly from the excitement, but I was not as deathly afraid as I had once been in the pillbox positions. The opinion often expressed among some GIs that after any man was wounded, once he was never any good in combat again, did not hold true in my case. I was more calm than ever before, but I was also more cautious. Now they proceed with that attack, and, and again, obviously, there's this book is just filled with tactical situation after tactical situation after lesson learned after lesson learned after tactical situation and and I'm not reading the entire book right now uh, but that is why you get the book so that you can get all this information from it I can't give it all to you on a podcast you have to read it but fast forwarding through that assault back to the book I stopped longer at the house where the men from the squad of the sergeant who had been killed were preparing for the night. I had not known the sergeant personally, but to these men he was an important character in the little war that revolved around themselves. There was an undertone of sadness as they talked, but there was no bitterness. 
the sergeant had died like any one of them might die at any time there was a war on you know and what I like about that is he points out that you know from his perspective all this stuff is going on he realizes that these guys that's the whole world to them right that sergeant that was killed that's their guy and their war is everything to them and it's just like when you meet people you know if you're in a business and you go and meet someone on the front lines like they don't care I'm not saying they don't care but they've got their whole world in what they're doing Mm -hmm. so you got to be cognizant of that you got to understand that and you got to keep that perspective when you go out and talk to people you can't be like uh you know hey there's a lot of people that got killed today no it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. to these guys there's only one guy that matters to these guys now like i said this book is covers a ton of different combat and they go while he's in charge of G Company, they go through all these different towns. I mean, they go through the town of Hombressen and across the Vesser River, and they go through Ellerhausen, and they go through Varlausen, and they go through Varminsen, and they go through Mengerhausen and Gismar. And they're going just from, from city to city. They're going very quickly, and the fighting, it's becoming a little easier as they're going. Mm-hmm. The defenses, you know, the Germans are running out of out of people they're running out of um you know supplies as well so the fighting's getting easier but they're still meeting some hardcore some hardcore defenders and one of the things that's happened that's really horrible is they the the germans now are using anti-aircraft weapons against the ground troops so anti-aircraft weapons make flak they go up in the air and they explode and they're now using those against the ground troops and there's a it just the way that these browns are coming in and exploding above them it's it's a nightmare and it's really hard for them to fight so they've got some good efforts going on to go and take out these these anti-aircraft weapons and one of the one of the anti or one of the groups of anti-aircraft weapons that they take out they finally get they finally take out these anti-aircraft weapons through an assault and when they get done with the assault McDonald comes up on the position and here we go back to the book sergeant Patton said the Germans manning the position in the field which held them up were bastards They had two AA guns. He said some of them wanted to surrender But every time a kraut would jump out of his hole to surrender some other kraut SOB would shoot him right in the back Counting the ones they killed and the ones we got too. There's 19 dead Patton had one man slightly wounded in the arm, but he had already walked back to Geismar to, to the aid station. My weapons platoon and platoon of heavy machine guns from H Company arrived from their supporting position outside Geismar. Sergeant Mark Mitchell was killed, one of the sergeants from the heavy machine gun told me. I could not think of for a moment who Sergeant Mitchell was. Then I remembered he was the pleasant, perennial, cheerful tech sergeant in command of the platoon who was to receive his commission as a second lieutenant in a few days. An anti-aircraft gun fired from the woods to the south, the sergeant continued, and Sergeant Mitchell got hit. He was unconscious, and the aid man took him back to one of the TDs to give him first aid. TD is a tank destroyer. It's like another tank, but they're specifically meant to fight other tanks. The aircraft gun fired again and the goddamn TD backed up. Ran right over Sergeant Mitchell. So that's a another 
thing that you have to train for is when you're working with armor, when you're working the tanks, they don't know what's going on around them. They don't have like rear view backup cameras. Mm-hmm. And so if you get in the way of a tank, it's going to run you over. And so that's something that we, we, we were lucky when we, before we went on deployment, we'd go work with tanks a little bit. And that's where we'd learn that lesson. Because you might think, oh, I'll take cover behind this tank. That tank could move at any moment. Mm-hmm. So you got to be very careful that young troopers out there, if you don't work with tanks often, stay out of their way. Here's uh, as they're continuing to press through and press through and press through from village to village, from town to town. And again, they're moving pretty rapidly now. Back to the book. Colonel Smith rolled up beside me, beside my tank and his Jeep. Nice going, Mac, he said. You're doing a really swell job. Just keep them moving. The faster, the better. Don't thank me, Colonel, I said, meaning it and disgusted that it sounded melodramatic. Thank Lieutenant Bagby and the 1st Platoon. I'm just tagging along. So you got a leader there that's not looking to grab all the credit himself, but give it to his troops. Now, like I said, the, the fighting continues to get easier and easier, and they're starting to see, you know, people surrender. They're also starting to see like young kids because you're starting to see the Hitler youth that are being recruited. They're 13 years old, 14 years old, kids that are surrendering. They fight through Corbetha and Lopitz and Kriegsdorf. And I apologize for my lack of German um, speaking capability. But they get they get into one town. And one of the lieutenants, Lieutenant Whitman, kind of pushes into the town with a small team. Mm. And he's in there he's in one of the buildings and all of a sudden like a massive group of of german soldiers comes in and they're kind of stuck there so here we go back to the book lieutenant whitman called suddenly over the radio and i knew by the excitement in his voice that something had either happened or was about to happen you better get somebody else up here to help us out sounds like a whole regiment of krauts coming coming this way up the highway so this he's trying to figure out what's happening and then the radio sputtered hello g G6, this is Wit. So G6 is the call sign for, for McDonald's. Hello, G6, this is Wit. For God's sake, get someone up here to help. There's Germans all over the goddamn place. I grasped the speaker from West Miller's outstretched hand. Wit, this is Mac, I said. They caught us halfway across the open field. The men have taken off. I'll have to go back and get them to come up. Over. For God's sake, get us up some help quick. We're completely surrounded. Roger, out. So now Whitman's in one of these buildings, completely surrounded. This continues on. The, the battalion radio was silent. I called for Lieutenant Whitman, and his voice came through weakly, as though he were speaking in a stage whisper. I'm back on the left side of the highway, he said, in a house. I've got nine men with me. Germans are running all around all over the place. I lost track of all the other men, heard some of them surrendering. Get us some help quick or they'll find out where we are when they start searching the houses. So, McDonald tries to, okay, calls battalion, hey, we need some help, we need some help here. No, you don't get any help. And so he tells Whitman, or Whitman hears it on the radio that he's not gonna get any help, he's not gonna get any support. And this is what Whitman says. There's only one thing to do then, he continued. If we have to wait that long, they're sure to find us. We'll go down to the cellar and you start plastering us with artillery fire. We're inside and the Krauts are out in the open. 
We'll help you direct fire from here. I knew his decision called for a generous amount of fortitude, even though he would be partially protected in the cellar. Lieutenant Reed set up his artillery radio, and artillery gave us a priority mission. Sergeant Barnes arrived with his platoon and the machine gun section. I sent them into position along with a heavy a platoon of heavy machine guns from H Company. To hell with the ammunition, I said. We'll get more from somewhere. Spray the hell out of the whole area. The machine guns opened up and artillery whistled overhead, thundering into the open field dangerously close to the paling fence at the end of the garden. 300 short, Lieutenant Reed yelled into his radio. 300 short. The artillery whistled overhead again and plummeted into the houses beyond us with a terrific roar. Orange flames lit the darkness like flashes of lightning. That's right on top of us, Whitman cried, delighted. Let her go again. We can hear Germans running all over the place outside. Lieutenant Reed called for barrage after barrage, and the big shells roared into the objective. The Germans made feeble efforts at retaliation with their machine guns, but the shots died away in the explosion of the big artillery shells. A direct hit transformed a house into a mass of roaring flames. Is that your house? I asked Whitman, half fearfully. No, seems to be on our left, he answered. Give us another volley in the same place. Sounds like a tank or some kind of armored car pulled up. Lieutenant Reed called for a repeat volley. That hit just right, Whitman said, his voice scarcely audible over the radio. I wondered what had happened to his radio and was afraid that perhaps the batteries were going dead and we would lose our only means of communication. I can't talk loud, he said. I've got 15 kraut prisoners down here in the cellar with me and some Germans have come in upstairs. We can hear them walking around. If one of these prisoners so much as opens his mouth, I'll plug him. So there's another situation where you're calling in artillery to your position. You just happen to be in the cellar of a house. Mm. crazy here they're they're doing a little assault and it's set up like a frontal assault but he wants to make a little adjustment here the obvious solution to being unable to advance frontally against the unseen enemy was to send a flanking platoon around to the right having them enter the woods and come out on come in on the defenders from the flank and rear but I balked at the thought of sending one platoon such a great distance when for all I knew the woods beyond the canals might be thick with enemy I decided to cover our front with artillery and have two platoons try to advance frontally and notified second and third platoons to be ready to move forward under cover of artillery barrage but the enemy came suddenly to life when the riflemen rose to go forward and repulsed three efforts to advance so he wants to flank but he's weighing it in his head. The, the flanking positions through the woods, in order to flank, he needs to put his guys through the woods, through an area he doesn't know, doesn't know how well it's defended. So he says, you know what, instead of doing a flank, which is what I want to do, I'm just going to put down some artillery fire and we're going to do a frontal assault. They get shut down and eventually he does make the decision, you know what, the, bet, the, the decision now becomes, okay, frontal assault is not going to work, now I'm going to have to flank. He goes back to that flank. I sent Whitman with a spare 300 radio and ordered him across the canal he moved out quickly and far to the right I could see his men emerge from the woods and wade across the first canal the water coming to the necks of the shorter men My fear of a larger enemy force in the woods Overcame my fear for safety of our left flank and I ordered lieutenant Bagby's platoon to follow the flanking force We could see the little dots that were Whitman's men emerge from the wood line and double time towards the garden Lieutenant Reed stopped the artillery fire the third platoon to my front began to advance and I knew it was only a matter of minutes until the objective would be ours 
I signaled the CP group and we moved to the railroad tracks on the and on toward the bridge, past three wounded Germans lying helplessly in the gully beside the tracks where Barnes men had evidently shot them earlier in the day. The automatic the enemy automatic weapon suddenly opened up again at the third platoon, but the men were close enough now to pick up the bush from which it was firing. They fired round after round into the clump of bushes, and the weapon was silent. So eventually he gets his flank on, and that's what that's what wins the day. Now Again, a lot is covered as they do this city by city. Some of the villages, some of the towns that they enter, there's no resistance. Some of them, there is massive resistance. They push through it. They fight through it. Lots of lessons learned. Lots of incredible heroics. And eventually, they push through and they make it all the way into Czechoslovakia. And we're now approaching the end not only for McDonald, but the end for the war as they go in to liberate Czechoslovakia. Going back to the book, our column continued forward and my company shifted to the lead position on the tanks. I rode behind the lead tank in the artillery jeep. The little country towns changed into industrial, small industrial towns, and we began to notice a scattering of red, white, and blue Czechoslovakian flags in towns in place of the usual white flags of surrender. Civilians waved at us guardedly from behind closed windows. The scattering of Czech flags should have warned us, but we were totally unprepared for the mad celebration which greeted us in the next town. We had suddenly crossed from the Sudetenland into Czechoslovakia proper. The houses were a riot of color with red, white, and blue Czechoslovakian flags. Civilians lined the streets ten deep, cheering and waving their flags as if their lives depended on it. Our column was forced to slow down, and the happy civilians pushed into the street and showered us with flowers and cakes and cookies. One old woman thrust a baked chicken into our jeep. Another old woman stood behind the road, beside the road, waving both hands in the air, tears streaming down her wrinkled cheeks. Little children were wild with joy. Some of them had never known anything but six years of Nazi occupation. The young men wore red, white, and blue armbands and carried German weapons, a part of the underground movement that was now that was even now struggling against superior German forces in the capital city of Prague. Everyone was screaming the Czech words, Nazdar, Nazdar, and we wondered what they meant. I looked up and down the column at the soldiers in the company. Brilliant smiles read their faces, and they waved cheerfully at the shouting crowds as if they had just won an election campaign, and this was a personal triumph. Hardened, stubble-faced veterans had unshamed tears in their eyes. The unleashed joy of these oppressed people knew no bounds, and it was too much for us. Suddenly, I began to realize what no one thus far had been able in the war to put into words. What we were fighting for. And I found a lump in my throat which I could not swallow. Freedom. Freedom. Something we take for granted. 
back to the book the news came by radio that the war was over there was no defining our joy sergeant Quinn brought out a treasured keg of cognac the next day May 8th would be VE day the townspeople held a dance for us the next night in the town guest house one of the artillery men was escorting a young girl whom he had met the night before and she told him that her friend Lieb would like very much to attend with the captain the small guest house was crowded with dancers and the older men and women sat with the young children at tables around the sides of the room male dancers the male dancers were predominantly GIs but a few Czech young men were present the orchestra reminded me of the circus bands in the US as they played the waltzes the polkas the Czechs would join in often to sing the songs enthusiastically even as they danced at the insistence of the band leader Lieb agreed to sing and the notes came forth in a clear sparkling soprano when she had finished she made a brief speech which the Slavic speaking soldier told me said that the people would now sing their national anthem it would be the first time they had sung it in public in six years the people rose as one and every boy girl man and woman joined in the singing with clear lusty voices that made goose pimples rise on my arms some of the older people cried and it was all I could do to keep the tears from my eyes when it was over the soldiers began to cry speech speech and the civilians caught on and applauded I stood up on a chair in the center of the room trying to think of something to say I mumbled a few words of sincere gratitude for the wonderful reception these wonderful people had given us and the soldier translated for Lieb and she told the people what I had said they applauded warmly Lieb and I walked outside into the cool night air in the distance we could see fireworks exploding in the air above Pilsen and we knew that they too were celebrating VE Day I looked around me and saw light streaming from the windows and army vehicles driving on the highway with their headlights on and I heard the gay music and laughter from the dance in the background I suddenly realized that I could light a cigarette once again in the open and not be afraid of drawing enemy fire and I did it was a simple thing but it gave me a wonderful feeling that life was worth living again I put my arm about Lieb's waist and she pointed to the multicolored fireworks display and laughed Dobri Dobri I had learned that Dobri was good and I said Dobri Dobri I looked away in the distance and I seemed to see the faces of the men from companies I and G who could not see this great day because they had died to obtain it and then their faces were gone 
and I saw the mud and ice and snow of the Siegfried, Siegfried line. Then the exploding fireworks became bursting artillery shells in the Ardennes and bursting flak at leap heads. But then the terror was gone. And I saw two companies of men marching by, and there was I Company and G Company, tired, dirty, weary, but with smiling faces. And somehow the faces of the men who had been killed were in the background, smiling and waving bravely to those who marched on. And Lieb looked up at me as if to ask what I was thinking, and I said, Dobri, Dobri. And Lieb squeezed my hand and laughed. Yes, Dobri. And that is the end of my story. But perhaps you would like to know that my company moved on five miles north of Pilsen to Tremonza. And there we met another group of dirty, tired infantrymen who called themselves Russians. A month later, we were loaded on a big boat at La Havre. And on July 20th, 1945, we sailed into New York Harbor and received the cheers of a grateful America and saw a tall lady with a torch that brought tears to our eyes. The characters in my story were destined to be sent to help to finish another war in another part of the world where another group of American infantrymen were fighting a dirty, miserable war. But a miracle happened, and the other war came to an end. Most of my characters are wearing civilian clothes again now. But I know that wherever they are, they will have a hollow place in their hearts for those who will not be changing into civilian clothes again, ever. Those GIs who, that others may live, were cut down in a harvest for the devil. And that is how this book wraps up. Incredible book. Again, it's called Company Commander by Charles B. McDonald. And although that is the end of this book, let it not be the end of our memory. And let us not forget these lessons and let us not forget the tyranny and the oppression that was forced onto millions and millions of people. And let us not forget the millions and millions and millions of innocent people murdered, butchered, frozen, starved, 
wasted wasted human lives to satisfy the twisted ego of a few and let us never forget these men that fought hunger and fatigue and fear to face and to fight evil and let us not forget those that sacrificed their youth and their health for the youth and the health of others And finally, let us never, ever forget those men and women who were cut down in this harvest for the devil to give other human beings the most precious gift in the world. Freedom. Let us never forget them or this gift. Freedom. And I think that's all I've got for tonight. Echo Charles. If you want to uh, maybe take a minute here and explain, give me a chance to decompress over here and maybe you can explain in the meantime if somebody wants to support this particular podcast. Sure. How, how they could do that. It's crazy. These books don't, like the effect of, and obviously you didn't read the whole book, but just what you read like the way it affects you you know it takes you there and just even like at the end when it's like the war was over you feel oh you're like oh my gosh thank god that's over kind of thing you have that feeling and it just never wears off it's crazy yeah well i've said before you know when we when we started and i wasn't sure if i would have enough books right yeah but we're gonna have enough books i know man. every single one of these Stories is is its own incredible story and 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 because what what we just talked about how you get this This war world war two for this guy was this here But you know you get someone that's in the Pacific and you take one if you were to take one of his platoon commanders It would be that war. It's these little tiny human experiences that are so incredible and each one of them is as just as incredible as the next one is just as cr- incredible as the previous one and that's why you just I, I just don't know if we'll ever get to them all and the other thing is that we have to remember is a tiny 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 minuscule percentage of these people actually wrote a book yeah most of these stories they just just they just happened yeah you know, and, and, and we it. don't know about them yeah it's so crazy and each one 
is like is so unique in their little perspective but at the same time it has so many similarities you know and it all sort of like as you gather you know one story two stories all these different it starts to tell this overall tale you know yeah and it's it's the tale of of humans it's the tale of human nature it's the tale of and it's the tale of overcoming right yeah I mean, just the things that these guys overcome. You, you take all these things. You know, I've been I've been in some miserable places, right, in my time, right. I mean, every basically everybody has. You've been in some hard places in your life, and then these guys they do that, and they live that way, and then they get attacked, and then they lose guys, and they get wounded, and then they just go right back out, right oh, back man. onto the front. The limits of human nature are, are the limits of human, the capacity of human beings to overcome. Mm-hmm. Obstacles is 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 unbelievable, and if there's nothing else, like I, I know, not everyone goes to war, and not everyone should go to war, and I don't want anyone to go to war if you can help it. Mm-hmm. But if at least we learn that whatever we're coming up against, man, we can deal with it. Yeah, we can, can do so much more, and be so much more uncomfortable, and push yourself so much harder. You know, that was one thing, and I didn't, I didn't do a good job today of portraying it, but. He's getting pushed in a lot of these situations. I mean, you can kind of hear it when he's getting woken up. Every time he wakes mm-hmm. up, his his initial reaction is isn't cool. I get to go fight now. No, mm-hmm. his initial reaction every single time is like, I want to go back to bed. I yeah. want the war to be over. Mm-hmm. I want to hide. I want to. That's his reaction every single time. And yet, every single time he gets up and he does his job, he does his duty, and he does what he has to do. That's that's the human spirit, right? Mm-hmm. That's the thing that we should all capture. I mean, we have a hard time getting out of bed because it's going to be a tough workout or because <laughs> we're going to have a hard day at the office. You know, it's like yeah. we we're 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 pathetic. We're pathetic. Compared to these guys that are, oh, it's, you know what's waking you up? Mortar fire. Machine gun fire. People screaming that they're being overrun. That's your wake-up call. I think we can get out of bed in the morning because we, you know, because we got, we're facing a a tough workout or a hard day or we got to get up early for travel or whatever situation you're in. Mm -hmm. You can do it. I can do it. We can do it. Look at what these guys went up against day after day after day after day after day after day after day. Just doesn't stop. It just doesn't stop. And the whole time, by the way, there's the threat of death. By the way, the whole time. Freezing. You know, I just thought about this. Like, this is a book where he doesn't even talk about, like, his family. Yeah. He doesn't talk about his loved ones. No, he's there. He's just, like, detached from everything else. He's got a war to, he's got a war to fight. So, th- thankfully, we get these incredible memoirs. This one here, if you're looking at it on YouTube, uh, hold it up the cover. I got the old school version. It has illustrations in it. Got some cool ink drawings of. Mm. It's all of weapons, just to kind of let you know what these things look like. But yeah. incredible stuff. Yeah, man. So yeah, support, right? If you're in the mood. Yeah. Like, for instance. How much effort does it take to click through Amazon? It doesn't take a lot of effort. You can do it if you want to support you. Yeah, yeah, if you want to support in that way. Actually, let me go ahead and explain that. The Amazon thing is cool. So, you do your Amazon shopping like we always do daily for some of us. Uh, Instead of going straight to Amazon, just go to jockopodcast.com. Little Amazon banner on the side. You kind of got to scroll down. If you want to hit the banner sometimes, but I put it up in the top menu as well. Boom. Click on the Amazon banner, then do your shopping. Good way to support. 
like Jocko said, just you know, little action. We can do that if you want. If if that's what you're doing, if you're supporting the podcast, uh, uh, boom, w- that's a good w- way. Are we asking them to assault a target? Are we asking them to no. flank an enemy? Are we are we asking them to come up against Panzer tanks or Tiger tanks with one bazooka and ten tanks? No, no, <laughs> no. Just asking for a little support. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, and yeah, it's a good way too. It's a really good way. It's. Well, I was gonna make the comparison to the plane that comes in and and then leaves, you know. But meanwhile, it's huge support. But that's true. Let's yeah. face it, though. Those pilots. That's 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 a lot of work. Oh yeah, yeah you know for sure. So let's. I mean, yeah. I don't know if that's a fair comparison, but nonetheless, let's Amazon stick, let's stick with sodium <laughs> on that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like sodium, you know, little piece of sodium. Throw it in the fish tank. You know what? We should actually do that. Yeah. We need to do it, actually. We need to do Facebook Live. We need to get some sodium and put it in a wa- yeah. bucket of water so we can give visuals <laughs> yeah, good. behind the situation that you're talking about. Yeah, we'll do it at your house. Okay. Bring it. <laughs> Where do you get sodium? Though? I don't know. Like CVS? You're the logistics guy. <laughs> Go get some sodium. Look into that one. Anyway, that is a fair, more fair analogy. You're the sodium big reinforcement effects with the Amazon click-through situation. Also, if you're into supplementation, which I'm going to go ahead and recommend it now. Catch me three years ago. You're not going to hear me recommending any supplements. Maybe a pre-workout. Maybe. And even then, it's like caffeinated. I was thinking, you know, okay, so uh, on it, right? That's the supplements we're talking about, if you didn't know. If you did know, this is all familiar to you. But the pre-workout that we uh, talk about is called Total Strength and Performance. Mm-hmm. You know, weightlifting, whatnot. It's pre-workout. It's not. It's stimulant-free, right? So you know what I was thinking. I was like, hey, stimulant-free pre-workout is kind of different than what I'm used to. But you know what it's like. I, I don't. But I've got a feeling I'm going to learn yeah, real quick. This, this is what it's like. It's <laughs> like you ever watch movies and the, the good guy, like. I don't know, Clint Eastwood, yeah. Bruce Willis, like he's all calm. He's like, he's not wired enough. He's all oh, calm. I see what you're saying here. But when it goes down, bro, he kills, you know, <laughs> kicks ass. That's what this pre-workout is kind of like. Like when you take it, you're like, oh, I'm, I'm calm. But on the inside, so much potential. <laughs> and then when you get the work going, it's like, boom. So they, they do studies on, on it. That's actually the good, one of the good parts about it. It's like they do real, yeah. like placebo tested, like at studies. Double blind placebo tested yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. Sounds cool, but it is cool. So with this pre-workout one, it's like over, uh, I think it was like a four week period. It's like, I want to say 6% improvement on like on average, about right, there, right, right. you know, and I'm thinking, oh yeah, 6%. I was like, okay, cool. Single digit percent. Sometimes that can mean a lot. So I'm like thinking, okay, what's 6%? What does that look like? You know, so I'm I thinking know. add that to your bench press number or whatever. How about add that this? To your deadlift number. How about this? Subtract it. Ooh. So this is this is how it really hit Why me. you got to be negative. I know, <laughs> Brad, because I'm trying to prove a legitimate point. Okay, so let's say I'm doing some dumbbells, right? Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna do a set of ten. I don't know. I'm not saying me. I'm just saying anyone. And I'm gonna use the hundred pound dumbbells. I'm gonna do ten of them. Curls. Right? We'll do, how about this? We'll do uh, uh, bench press dumbbells. You know, I'm going to do hundreds. And one week I do, you know, a set of 10, boom, solid, right? And then whatever, I finish my workout. The next week, if I can do 6% less, like that's my limit. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling 6% weaker. Yeah. 
I can't do those hundreds ten times. No. I got to go to the 95s. Oof. Bro, you know how whack that is? It's real whack. Uh, <laughs> so I'm saying if you don't take this pre-workout over a month period of time, this is just on average. If you don't take this pre-workout, you're the guy who did the 95s. Mm-hmm. If you do, you're the guy who did the hundreds. Actually, it's less than 95s, really. It's like 94s, really. <laughs> on average, dang. See, so that's what if you're not taking the pre-workout, which I do now, by the way, if you're not taking it, you're that guy. No, if, I mean, that's cool, but I'm just saying well, you're missing not. out on, on gains galore, you know? <laughs> you know, see what I'm saying? Yeah. Anyway, and this is all proven stuff. This is just me making it up. It's like proof. They do. They did it. Florida State University. And you, you prove it yourself. Yeah, that part is up to you. I mean, it's it's up to you to go get after it. You no, know? but what about you personally? Yeah, I'm, I'm all, up, all up on it. I didn't measure my results or nothing like that. I you didn't just do a bl- double blind. Mentally? Yeah, the pop, remember? Oh, that's right. Pop, pop is real. How <laughs> they did it is, you know, you know, even the, the word double blind placebo, or yeah. placebo situation, right? whatever. Like a lot of people, they don't know what that is. What it is is they get a bunch of, a group of people who are going to work out hard, going for gains straight up. They're going to give them all the supplement, all of them, all the people they're going to give the supplement. But half of those people, it's actually not the supplement. It's like nothing. But they don't know that. Everyone thinks they're taking the supplement, so they're all getting after it. They're all, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then they say, okay, who's gonna who whose gains are better? And they monitor, and all the people with the supplements, their gains were, you know, on average, and it's all these different lists, bench right. squat, all this stuff. So boom, proven, boom. Anyway, it cold. tastes good. That much I can actually attest to. It does. I was thinking about that. I can too. attest that it makes. Now I I can't I I haven't done a double blind placebo on myself. Me neither. Because I would have to like mix it up and fake myself out, and I'm <laughs> yeah. pretty hard to trick. Yeah, it's pretty, yeah. <laughs> so, but like I said, I when I when I feel the need, I take not only Shroom Tech Sport but also the pre, yeah, and get after it. Yeah, if I know that the boys are waiting for me for the jujitsu training, yeah, and I know it's going down, I I will. If I'm not, if I'm feeling any sort of hesitation, I'll get after that. <laughs> Default stuff. aggressive, yeah. when in doubt, yeah, do that. And it makes sense too because obviously jujitsu, especially when you're going hard, that's a workout oh, that sure. you need to recover from, and you'll be, you know, so you'll get better results from recovering from even a jujitsu workout. Yeah, you know, I just worry about performance. Yeah, performance. I'm not doing it for recovery. To be honest with you, yeah, with the jujitsu workout. But like it or not, that's what you're getting. I'm getting you're it's getting a bonus. the recovery too. Yeah, <laughs> fully, fully is. Um, but yeah, so good. Yeah, you say it tastes good. It does taste good. It was weird because um, as far as pre workouts go, like if you get a regular quote unquote regular pre workout, they try to make it taste like candy and Kool Aid and yeah. lemonade and all this stuff. And I'm not mad at it. It tastes good or whatever. I'm mad um, at it. But yeah, man, let's face it. I mean, it's not, it's not that good. So when I took this one, it was kind of it had more of like a um. You know, like if you take like natural greens or yeah. something, it kind of has, like has a that. Yeah. earthy. It's earthy. earthy. There's an earthy flavor to it, earthy. which I was like, oh, this is different. It's not like candy. And I was like, okay. And then after a while, you kind of get used to it. And then you have that, you know, you have that association to certain tastes from like, then you go work out, you get the pop and it's like kind of part of the routine. And so it's like, tastes all good now. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> it through association. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Anyway, it doesn't taste like krill oil. Like if you're chopping, chomping krill oil don't tablets, yeah, you got to just swallow those. Yeah. Don't chomp those. Those do not taste good. Yeah. So, and cool. So krill oil, speaking of which, is the go-to. 
in my opinion. It's the go-to. I was talking to Greg Train about this. What's today? It was the yesterday I was talking to him. And of course, like, okay, if you're working out and you're like, hey, my joints are less sore, it's good. Of course. But you know when you do notice it, and in my experience, even more, if you pay attention, is like, for example, like a few days ago, I'm sitting down in the living room with like the kids. You know, we're sitting, we're sitting there for a long time, same position, like for 45 minutes. Usually after 45 minutes, and then it's okay, it's time to get up. Whatever, you gotta do something. You get up and you're like, oh, you know, you get up, you know, you, and you make that, that noise. Huh? <laughs> Me, no. But if I didn't take krill oil, I probably would have that. And I have had that, especially if you've worked out that day or something like that. You yeah. know, you just stiffen up. I'm just saying. And you feel it. With the krill oil, it's almost like you're always warm, you know? Not warm physically, but, you know, like you've already warmed up. That's kind of what you feel like. It's good. I'm a supporter. Yeah. So I'm saying get on the krill oil. Yeah. Like I said, I, I had injuries and krill oil. That was a long time ago that I started taking krill oil. And I haven't stopped and I'm not going to. Yeah. Yeah, because even like. Like you say, injuries, which, yeah, of course, legitimate, but I never, I mean, I've had injuries, but it more helps like the pre-injury, you know, like yeah, it's yeah. something it's that's not an injury. Yeah. Something that's just kind of just nagging you, you know, stuff you got to like battle through or something like that. You don't have to battle through that anymore. You just, you got omega threes. Next, <laughs> next time I'll go into the whole why fish oil or krill oil is better than fish oil because we talked about it. it'll take too long it's kind of technical i'll put it into like this term some other time anyway <laughs> krill oil is dope pre-workouts dope everything on on it is good actually just depends on what kind of workout program what kind of lifestyle you know but they have something for everybody like regardless of what you do even the krill oil even if you're not that active it's just good for your joints you know as like because over time you degenerate you know whatever krill oil regenerate also another way to support is subscribe on itunes or the various podcast platforms stitcher google play all these things if you subscribe if you haven't already you know that's a good support you know get updates when um, new episodes come out also on youtube we have a youtube channel excerpts on there along with the video version of this podcast which helps if you need to know what echo looks like because apparently yeah. Echo does not look like what he sounds like. Yeah. I've been told. Actually, how's this? It, it, so, Paul, my new friend Paul, came in from Arizona, visited, came to the V, Victory, looked into some jujitsu. Oh, that, no, I was out know? of town. You were out of town. Yeah, it's too bad. So he goes, he says, when I walked in, he's like, hey, Echo. I was like, cool. I was like, hey, you know, what's up? And he goes, oh, you're... I, for some reason, I thought you'd be bigger, he said. Mm. I was like, oh, interesting. I was like, because typically people, if they haven't seen me or whatever, they think I'm smaller. Mm-hmm. And you think I'm bigger. So it's kind of it's just different. He what probably I got that impression do? from reading on social media that Echo's jacked. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. People go, Echo's jacked. Or, yeah, or maybe. You know. Maybe he thought I was just tall, like super tall or something. Oh, yeah. Well, maybe. But what are you, 5'11"? 6'11". <laughs> super tall. I'm normal height. I don't know. I don't know. Either way, um, <laughs> what was the point there? Uh, oh, yeah, if you want to watch YouTube yeah. videos of, of Jocko, 
yeah, it's less about me, I think. No, it's about it's you. about me, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So either of us. Um and you want to watch a video version, go ahead, watch that, man. It's good. It's on YouTube. And also, uh, I'll put some excerpts on there, just in case you don't want to watch the whole, to sit in front of the computer and watch, like, for two hours, three hours sometimes. I mean, that's kind of unrealistic. Unless you're playing it. A lot of people it. do it. <laughs> yeah, well, no, what, what, and I've done this before, too. You just put it on, like, your TV, yeah. your smart TV. But sometimes I want to see what is going on yeah. in the podcast. I want to see the look on my own face or on your face when I say something. I kind of want to see what that looks like. So. Yeah, yeah, and that makes sense because you, when you figure, I mean, I, I feel like a lot of people watch less TV, but that could be just my little bubble. But No one watches TV. Oh, yeah, TV no one at dead. all. No, but think, think about this. Hawaii Five-0. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good one for sure. But let's say you watch, I don't know, Dr. Phil. Not that I watch Dr. Phil, but if you watch, that's all they're doing. They're sitting, this guy's talking to this person and you're just watching it. Oh, you know, you could listen to that. You're saying, I, I'm just saying, if you're into Dr. Phil, the the difference between looking and, and watching it and just listening to it, like you understand that people actually do watch two people talk about stuff. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. It, you kind of feel like you'd be more in the conversation in a way. I don't know. Either way, um, YouTube. That's the that's the point there. If you if you want to watch this podcast or just the excerpts, and you don't want to watch the whole podcast, there's little excerpts, little lessons that um, I kind of separate from the podcast, put them on there, shareable little nuggets. Also, we have a store, JockoStore.com. If you like shirts and whatnot, new designs. Uh, I don't know. A week, next week we'll have them. I think new designs. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, kind of listen to the crowd a little bit. You know, people throw out suggestions all the time, which, you know, we listen to for sure. And um, kind of the, the ones that, what do you, I hate using the ones the word. that percolate to percolate. the top. I, mean, I like the word percolate better than resonate. The ones that resonate with my soul. You know, that feeling, oh. that's what the feeling I get when, when, okay. so you when I say it. When other people say it, it sounds cool. I just say the ones that are good. Yeah, that makes more sense for sure. All right, yeah, the ones that we thought are good, we'll put them, uh, we're starting to develop more and more designs and um, have them. So, yeah, jockalstore.com. And, and, you know, women's stuff is on there, some patches, some shirts, of course, rash guards. See, this is what this is the thing. See, I'm not good at recognizing, like, hey, we should make more stuff right. because I it's hard for me to recognize what's good and what's bad because my mind is different than some people's yeah so but what's cool is when I do see something mm-hmm. and I do think it's good mm-hmm. it's pretty good <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's I, pretty good I, I and I, by the way that. I'm almost done with the Echo Charles t-shirt design by the way yeah which I think people are gonna like <laughs> and I, you know why they're gonna like it because you designed it well yeah but but that's not why they're gonna like it because it's not just straightforward right. <laughs> <laughs> let me guess some, you can guess so, it. some layers there's on some that. Layers there on that one uh, yeah no i believe right you're the you're the original layer creator really <laughs> when it comes down to it <sighs> and no i think that is that's ex- funny so speaking of layers the day that echo asked me what font it was that i used to write jocko podcast and I was like, yeah, it's OCR standard. And, and then he kind of looked at me and I said, it's because it's a machine can read it. And, you know, this is like part machine here. <laughs> and he was all excited with the layers <laughs> right there. <laughs> uh, I'm telling you the layers are real. 
and I respect them. Good. So yeah, there it is, Jocko Store. Um, also, oh yeah, this, sorry, ra- this rash guards on there. Alleged nineteen percent, straight up nineteen yeah. percent increase improvement performance, um, results, all that stuff. Hoodies on there too, and you know, like I said, more stuff. The, we have a travel mug coming out. That one's gonna be good. Um, we'll let you know when that's out. Uh, psycho- psychological warfare. I feel like I should talk about that right now. I feel like we can't stop you, so yeah. <laughs> I guess you might no, as well you, go for you it. You can't stop me. <laughs> so Psychological Warfare on iTunes is an album with tracks. And this is what it's for. It's not music. No. This is what it's for. It, 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 technically, it's considered spoken word. This is what it is. If you're feeling a moment of weakness in your discourse... Did I use that word right? Your discourse. Not really. Yeah. So in your course, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's better, closer. Warmer. In your journey, in your ambitious goals to s- stay on the program in whatever capacity. Right. Wake up early, get the workout in, hard workout in, um, you know, create, you know, write your book, your blog, your anything you're doing, right? More or less. And you're feeling moments of weakness. You're slipping from the path. You're taking a break when you shouldn't be taking a break. Scheduling unscheduled Ooh, rest days. Yeah, when you're feeling like that. Straying from the warpath. Yeah. You listen to one of these designated tracks. And it'll help you get past that weakness in that moment. I would say, and I've said this before, it is this is my guess, 100% <laughs> chance that it'll get you through your weakness. 100% chance. And this is why I say that, and I've said this before, but I think it's worth saying again. Because if you, let's say, you know, let's do the the wake, the, the workout one. That's the most common one to me. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to work. I don't feel like working out. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to put in workout and track, whatever, the, the one. I listen to it, and after I'm done listening to it, it's like two minutes long and I still skip the workout, that's like a shame. That's an unbearable shame, and it's all personal. So that means it's not 100% if you still skip the workout. I'm just trying to imagine if that were to happen. (laughs) I've never done it, and (laughs) the shame, the unbearable shame is so unbearable that it just simply wouldn't happen, you know? So that's why I say 100% chance. I don't think, I can't imagine a person that would actually let that happen, nonetheless. So whatever you're think your weakness is waking up early all this stuff if you do the wake up early one and you set it as your alarm which is a good idea by the way yeah it's actually that's the perfect idea yeah just clear it with your your spouse significant other significant other yeah Yeah. if if they're sleeping in the same bed or whatever and they have the potential to hear it there's some dude in the bedroom yeah yeah just like all of a sudden starts talking and it's jocko it's like a spot you know it's good psychological warfare iTunes, Jocko Willink. It's also on Amazon Music and all these other things. So, yeah, it's there. It's a good way to support. And support yourself. That one's a support yourself situation. For sure. For sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, what's cool now, right now, we're getting requests for Psychological Warfare 2. What topics need to be covered yeah. that I didn't cover on the first one? Yeah. So there's more weaknesses out there in the world. Weaknesses that are creeping around. And yeah. they're, they're trying to get people. But... Yeah, we're going to find some of them weaknesses and we're going to smash them. So, yeah, if you got any more suggestions, just hit it up, you know, through the Quitting smoking. How about that one? Right. That's a good one. Uh, do people still smoke? 
bro i that you know what's bro i was thinking about you know, that we too. live in california that's one of the things yeah we yeah, live in a california bubble. in california but a lot of people don't smoke anymore yeah it's not real popular out here anymore yeah so just like um bro i'm telling you we live in a bubble not only being in california but just think about the people you hang yeah. around with you know it's Everyone's like all that jiu-jitsu yeah navy seals jiu-jitsu guys who at the very least have like some level of health Fitness. consciousness. Yes, yeah. exactly. So, yeah, it's weird. I saw a guy smoking in his car, and I was like, I asked the same thing. I was like, dang, I didn't know really people yeah. smoked anymore, really. Well, I realized that when I go to another state yes, and you go into a restaurant or something, because it's illegal here. You oh, can't yeah. smoke in a restaurant. Right. You can't smoke in a bar here. You can't do it. It's illegal. Yeah. It's literally illegal. Yeah. So, yeah, you go to another state, and you and you smell cigarettes. And you go, oh, yeah, I remember that. Back <laughs> but yeah, that'd be a good one, I think. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll th- we'll think about that That's one. Craving. Yeah. I, th- I don't know if I could legally do it though, because I didn't smoke, and I don't know what it takes. I don't know if it's proper for me to do that. I mean, I could. I guess I could just get nuts on smoking. Yeah. Because yeah. I mean, it's a horrible thing that kills you. Yeah. We shouldn't be doing it. Man, I used there's to- actually no benefit from it, right? There's no. I mean, if you're doing steroids. There's some benefit to right. it, right? You're going to get stronger. If you're doing yeah. caffeine, you're going to be more awake. So there's certain benefits. Is there yeah. any benefits well, to smoking? it depends on what you mean by Did benefits. Did you ever smoke before? I've never even tried a puff of a cigarette before. Because you're from Hawaii. Well, that's not the reason you're an athlete. people smoke. No, it was the thing. It was the thing with my dad. He'd, he'd, he'd literally refer to it as the devil. Like oh, He'd okay. be like, smoke, it's the devil. And... It was it was a shame thing too. So the way he would talk about smoking, not necessarily the people just that smoke, but just smoking. Yeah, it's just so. It, it just to me, in my mind, according to his little that's cool message. So your dad done just, a good job there. It, yeah, yeah. I never tried. Yeah. Anyway, he should have told you sleep was the devil too. <laughs> get you out of the bed in the but morning. But sleep's not the devil. That's the <laughs> thing. Know, I know. Good. I know. But yeah, the smoke. It's. I think it's. Um, there is benefits though. Depends on what you to mean smoking? by benefits. Depends on what you mean by benefits, though. Health benefits of any kind. It gives you like this, this like buzz and alertness. But here's uh, the thing about it's weird because if you say smoking, smoking cigarettes, there's nicotine in it, and there's benefits in nicotine. But smoking also has all the carbon monoxide, like tar, all these like you know carcinogens things. and stuff like that. Yeah. So smoking, maybe not so much benefits nicotine there are benefits okay well let's just say no i say no there are no benefits so that's net benefit no negative Negative. all right and um let's see also speaking of net benefit you can get some net benefit if you want to try something called jocko white tea if you're worried if you're not a tea drinker don't worry because it doesn't taste like tea it tastes like victory here (laughs) And you know what? Don't take my word for it. I I got some reviews. We got some. We got a bunch of reviews on Amazon. And you know what? They're all awesome. Yeah. They're all twelve star, right? <laughs> yeah. So here's one. After drinking one cup of this balanced and delicious tea, I was able to execute a flying triangle on my black belt jujitsu instructor while discovering the mystery behind dark matter in the universe. It actually isn't dark matter. It's a combination of Jocko's chin and Echo Charles's biceps. Altering the gravitational field from random celestial bodies <laughs> So, you know, there's some good stuff here I can't speak to deadlift performance But what I can comment is a significant increase in production while performing farm work 
Most noticeably, I can dig post holes in hard southern clay in half the normal time while under the influence of Jocko White tea. Tastes great, and I highly re- recommend it for farmers, landscapers, construction workers, workers, or anyone who wants to get after it. So I didn't, you know, I wasn't familiar with that. But yeah. you do notice right now, like the economy is improving a lot. We're like, you know, everything's getting better. I think it's a lot of people are drinking Jocko White tea. They're working harder. Yeah, well, yeah. But so that you're saying correlate. You're not necessarily saying. I'm not saying it's a fact. I'm just saying it's factual. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, this guy here bought this from my wife. She's five two, 120 pounds. She was deadlifting 250 pounds. By the way, that's double body weight. Re- already impressive. After a week of imbibing this fine product, her deadlift suddenly increased to 1,250 pounds. <laughs> now, that might seem like a lot, yeah. but it's it happened, Standard. right? It's right there. Standard. I mean, this has been yeah. documented on Amazon reviews. You yeah. can't lie on those things. <laughs> it's gotta be true. Uh, we started throwing Jocko White tea bags in 500 gallon water tank on the fire truck. Little known fact, Jocko White tea is three times wetter than water. (laughs) We are now extinguishing fires three times faster, and in the process, anyone on scene who gets sprayed immediately starts getting after it. So there's a little side effect, but it's a positive side effect. It's not negative. Like you're putting out the fire, someone gets hit with some water by accident, they're not going to complain. They're going to start doing burpees. (laughs) Uh, We got a warning here. Too aggressive. Do not drink at work. Literally lip the ripped the door trim off the wall after consuming this victory in a glass. Luckily, since getting after it is my new default mode, I was able to repair the damage before the boss noticed. (laughs) Replaced pathetic, this is my best part, or the best part of this one, replaced pathetic screws with lag bolts. You know what lag bolts are? (laughs) They're like, instead of a screw, which is like a little tiny pencil thing, a lag bolt is a big bolt that you like. The real deal. Yeah. That's that's your mindset. Default, yep. Now, I mentioned this before, and I don't know if I should necessarily do this, but I kind of think I should. Got it. Yeah. There's a poem that someone wrote about Jocka White Tea, and it's based on the poem Infantry Columns by Kipling. This one is talking about Jocka White Tea, probably worth talking about here. Yes. So we'll go. Here we go. Jocka White Tea. I'm hot, brew, brew, brew. Brew, brewing up some Jocko tea. Hot, 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 hot. Brewing up some Jocko tea. Drink, 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 drink it down and brew again. There's no tea leaves in the pour. Three, two, four, five. Tasty cup of tea a day. Seven, three, five, nine. Cups the day before. Drink, drink, drink. Drink, drink it down and brew again. There's no tea leaves in the pour. Do, 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 do. Crush what is in front of you. Drink, 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 drink it down and brew again. Good, 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 good. We'll answer everything. There's no tea leaves in the pour. I've drank whole box and getting after it. Press, lift, squat, Roll, then right back to it again. Drink, 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 drink it down and brew again. And there's no tea leaves in the pour. <laughs> so, just when someone writes a review like that, yeah. I think that might be the best. As a matter of fact, let's just face it, that's the best review that's ever been written <laughs> on Amazon. So, good on you. 
that's the best review. It ever. was very impressive. It yeah. was very impressive. And uh, so that's that. Also, if you want to pre-order um, a little book coming out called Way of the Warrior Kid. And you can order it. And I'll tell you why. This book, you might be wondering what this book is about. This book is about everything. So I want to read a little excerpt to you. Mm -hmm. Young Mark, remember the beginning of the book, he could do zero pull-ups. Doesn't know how to do any pull-ups. Wasn't strong enough. Now he works through the summer. His Uncle Jake has shown him some good workout programs. And finally, he's built up over the summer, goes through some plateaus, gets through them, getting after it, training hard. Finally, towards the end of the summer, he gets his first day of doing 10 pull-ups, right? And so here's what happens. We're going back to the book. And that was it. I was now officially a kid who can do 10 pull-ups. No more hiding from the pull-up bar in school. No more being embarrassed about being weak. This was real. As I thought about this, I looked at Uncle Jake and said, thanks. No problem, Mark. And I want you to remember something. This isn't just about pull-ups. You know what else this is about, right? I wasn't quite sure. I don't know. Uncle Jake grabbed me by both shoulders and looked me straight in the eyes and said gravely, this is about everything. Everything. Just think, two months ago, you couldn't do any pull-ups at all. Zero. Now you can do ten. All it took was a good plan and the discipline to execute that plan, to do it. That's what it takes, and you can apply that to just about anything. If you are willing to do the work, you can make things happen. And like I told you, no one else is going to do the work for you. Sure, you might get some help along the way, but you might not. Who knows? What we do know is this. Hard work and discipline are how you achieve things. You have to make things happen. And that is exactly what you did here. And you can do that with almost anything in life. Remember that. Uncle Jake's putting out some word to young Mark. So there's all kinds of good lessons for, you know, I'd love to say it's a kid's book. It's a kid's book, basically. I'm going to tell you what. You might want to order it for yourself. Yeah, it's an everybody book. <laughs> it's an everybody book. It just, it's an everybody book. So that's that. Check out that book. Also, just released, Discipline Equals Freedom, Field Manual. Sometimes we need to refer to the manual on how to do things right. Mm-hmm. We need the manual if we're going to refer to it. It's true. The manual's coming. You can pre-order that one too. It's about everything. You know, that one's more aimed at an adult audience. Yeah. It is adult. Yeah. Dig it. Not that there's like bad words in it. Right. Or anything like that. There's no obscene topics. Yeah. Unless you think donuts are a bad word. Because <laughs> they're in there. <laughs> we talk about them a little bit and their yeah. their evilness. So yeah, you can you can get that one too. Uh, of course, you can get extreme ownership. It's about leadership in combat and business and it's about life. And you know, from what we learned in combat the lessons that we learned in combat, they will help you in your business and they will help you in life. So get a copy. Get a copy for your team. And you know, get up and down the chain of command. Up and down the chain of command. They need it. Also, I wanted to mention this. Echelon Front, right? This is the company, Leif Babin and I, who wrote the book Extreme Ownership with me. This is our company, Leadership and Management Consulting. That's what we do. We've also got JP Danell on board. We got Dave Burke on board. 
and we work with companies help them align their leadership around the principles from the book extreme ownership the things we learned in combat if you need this and this is the reason I'm saying this right now normally I don't talk about or I haven't talked about this much but people sometimes have a hard time figuring out how to get information echelonfront.com that's the business website if you want to bring us on board info at echelonfront.com you can email that address and then people can uh, get there you don't need to go to a speakers bureau if you want to hear me speak or if you want to hear Leif speak or if you want to hear because a speakers bureau is um, they they're companies that that facilitate speakers oh, like coming an agent almost. yeah they're like an agent yeah. so if you don't know where, how to contact if you want to hear Jocko talk you want to have Jocko come and talk at your company you type st- uh, speaker Jocko willing there's a good chance echelon front will come up and say oh yeah you can call this number or you can email here and you, that'll hook it up right. or there'll be someone else that says you know bills speakers right. and they're advertising me they're advertising everybody people right, that, right. and they say hey if you want to then they contact us right, right, right. but you got you got yourself a middleman in that scenario yeah so yeah actually that's good because like people still email me yeah like hey you know echo I mean, can, you, sh- echo, can you come and talk at our company no <laughs> Can you tell us about Can you tell us about on it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. I think. Like, yeah, yeah, no. You, you, were, you forward those just, those things to me too. Um, yeah, and, and I didn't know the info. I, I'll send them to like Jamie or something. Oh yeah, so, yeah, yeah. That's a that's. But yeah, so that's what you do. Yes. Yeah, info at echelonfront.com and you know between me, between Leif, JP, Dave Burke, and we do, we do programs like full programs at your company yeah to get everybody aligned and on the same page so that's what we do if you want to get some of that and also you can come to the muster in New York City New York City right can't be mad at New that. York City yeah. that's the place where we're gonna be May 4th and May 5th doing at the Marriott Grand Marquis now a couple things about the muster okay this is this is different, okay? This isn't a feel-good seminar to like pump you up. That is not what's happened to, at the muster. If you want that, don't come. Yeah, I'm not saying you won't be pumped up. I'm not saying you won't be motivated, but don't come if that's what you're looking for. There's not going to be any chanting, okay? Yeah. There's not going to be any like communal promises and that kind of stuff. Oh, that's yeah. that's not happening there. You're not going to fill out um, um, a dream board. <laughs> Okay, that's not happening. Don't come to the muster if that's what you want. Yeah. That's not what the muster is. This is practical tactics, tactics and strategies. Practical things that will help you lead your team and will help you lead yourself. So, if that's what you want, then come to the muster. If you want to chance and promise and stuff like this don't come because that's not what it is mm-hmm. if you want to learn how to lead come yeah yeah they're i mean I'm, I'm just obviously going on the last one but like you learn like scenarios you know that the q a part is straight up golden because everyone comes like hey i had this scenario that's been basically plaguing me for right. a year and it's just causing problems here and you know and everyone has their own one and while they're all unique they all kind of overlap with each other and and you guys are like okay this is what you do this is what you do this is the answer and it's like dang 
we now we have an answer. We go back to the work in it. Like a lot of times, it'll just solve like this one problem that yep. affects all this other stuff. So, man, it's it's so effective. It, it, it is, and when people come and they hear those questions get asked and and again there are there's always an overlap on the questions right mm. and and there's overlap on the principles as well mm-hmm. you know cover and move simple prioritize and execute execute decentralized command those the explanations can stand alone on themselves mm-hmm. but you start getting into real world application there's going to be other they're they're going to overlap you you need all four of them right yeah. you need all four of them to solve your problem you can't just solve a problem with decentralized command because if you try and do that, you'll make something too complex. You gotta keep it simple. Right, and by right. the way, there's gonna be multiple problems that you're gonna be trying to solve with your decentralized command, so you gotta prioritize and execute. So that's the way it is for every yeah. every problem that you're you're suffering. And then there's you know, there's obviously other other principles that we build upon that aren't just the four laws of combat. So you gotta get you gotta that's what's good, is when people hear the way that you utilize these tools. They learn to utilize them themselves, right? Yeah. That's that's what you're trying to do. It's like trying to teach someone to take pictures, right? You, you don't just and I'm saying this because you know I've been talking about cameras. You don't just say, okay, here, point this and sh- point this, set the setting to this, set the light over here, set this up, press this button, and there's your picture. That's cool. It works that one time. What what happens when I step outside yeah, and there's different yeah. lighting? Or what happens when the subject is moving? You gotta teach me how to do the job. Right, you gotta teach me the intricacies intricacies of it. You gotta show me all those things. I gotta learn how to use that tool, and that's what we do at the muster. You yeah. get these various tools. You don't just read about them and see what they are and say, okay, I understand what this tool is. Here, I'm holding this tool in my hand. It's sharp. I can cut with it. Well, guess what else you can do with this? There's a lot of things you can do with these tools that we put out at the muster. We take it to the next level so if that's what you're looking for come to the muster come to the muster and we got great feedback across the board so yeah come and get that in the meantime also if there's something that you want to ask or you have a question or you want to give some feedback or comment about what we're doing here or if you you just want to cruise with you know with echo charles primarily he's kind of (laughs) a primary cruiser here uh we're on the interwebs right now today yesterday we'll be there tomorrow twitter (laughs) Instagram and you know that we also we gotta be on that Facebook and you can get us there echo is at echo Charles and I am at Jocko Willink and to close this out for the day thanks first of all to all the people in uniform that are out there holding the line against terror against extremism, against criminals, against fire and disaster, against accidents, and against the unexpected. All of you, thank you for keeping us safe. And everyone else out there, thank you for listening. And I would also ask that you be thankful. You be thankful for your freedom your precious and costly freedom. Because sometimes when something is given to us, just given to us, we forget what the cost was. We forget the price that was paid. And there was a, pa- a price paid for our freedom, a massive price 
there are those that paid everything they had for our freedom so don't waste it don't abuse it don't squander it our time here is limited your time here is limited and you have this freedom you have this gift so what are you going to do with it what are you going to do with it today right now ask yourself that question ask and then go out and get after it so until next time this is echo and jocko out